G'day guys, Ben from Beyond the Fence here and welcome to episode 3 of our NBA season preview series where we get an expert from each team to jump on to talk about their teams. This is the Pacific Division edition, so we have guys talking about the LA Lakers and the LA Clippers, the Sacramento Kings, Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns. While I've got you here, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to, leave a rating on iTunes, it really helps us out. And apart from that, let's get into the episode. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! With six tenths of a second remaining. The brilliant shooting of Stephen Curry continues. And he ties the NBA record with his 12th three-pointer of the game. All right, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season previews to chat all about the Golden State Warriors. From SB Nation's Golden State of Mind, it's Mark DeLuke. How are you, mate? I'm doing well, doing well. The you know, Warriors went undefeated in the preseason, so, you know, riding high for the moment. Well, as we all know, preseason, that's completely indicative of how the things are going to shake out, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we'd gone 0-5, it wouldn't be true, but we no. went, the Warriors went 5-0, and so it absolutely is. Yeah, it depends, I guess, how you go, because, uh, you know, 5-0, and 5-0, and 6-0, 5-0, whatever. Yeah, 5-0, 5-0, yeah. Um, I mean, I see no reason to, to doubt that this will just translate over the next 82 and then, <laughs> and then the next 16 after that. So congratulations. Exactly. 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 We're, we're, there's one of uh, Brady Klopfer, one of the other people over at Golden State of Mind has been doing, I think it's, if you add it up, it's like, yeah, 104, 103. He's like the quest for 103 and O, you know, so that's yep. so, so five, so five games down, uh, 98 to go. Uh, yeah. Well, well, best of luck on that quest. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling just on a general level going into the season? I mean, you know, I, I make the preseason joke looking at the record, but I am actually pretty high on this Warriors team coming out of the preseason, not because of the wins, but because of what we saw in the preseason. Um, you know, it, it just last season when it, they came into the year, obviously they draft James Wiseman heading into last year. Um, you have sort of the COVID crunch. They end up losing, you know, Clay Thompson right before the draft. So they don't really, you know, they're kind of scrambling at the last minute trade for Kelly Oubre. You know, a lot of pieces were kind of thrown together, and it was one of those things where there was talent on the roster. You could kind of squint and see a contender, but ultimately, like seeing how it was going to play fit together always looked a bit awkward and uncomfortable. And it just never came together. Like, I, again, I'm, I'm higher on Kelly Oubre than I think most Warriors fans um, were. Obviously, he, he went inside with Charlotte this offseason, yeah. but it just the fit didn't uh, ever really materialize there. Um, this season, you look at the roster on paper, you look at the moves they made this offseason, whether it's, you know, getting Otto Porter Jr. and Nemanja Bialika um, on, on veteran minimum deals, even drafting, um, you know, they draft Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody in the lottery, but Moody's the one who probably has the biggest chance um, to make an impact. And then they're just bringing a lot of rotation pieces back. It just, you look at this team on paper and obviously all of the centers on Steph Curry, all a lot of this centers on Draymond green and the eventual return of Thompson, you know, around maybe December to January, you know, maybe if things go a bit slower, February, 
Um, you know, so so it all starts with them. But what we saw this preseason, Steph Curry still looks like Steph Curry, and he you know scored forty one points you know the other night against Portland. And the rest of this talent, there is floor spacing. You can see how this this roster is built to take advantage of Curry's strengths in a way the Warriors really haven't built uh, around you know Curry's strengths. I think you look at. I'm sorry, I know this is the first question I'm going into, but you know, <laughs> you look at like, you know, they when they signed Durant, and obviously, you know, one of the greatest boons in, in franchise history, they go on to win the titles, they do. But what that did was it really became kind of a cop out for the rest of the roster to really be built around trying to quote unquote address the weaknesses of Steph. Yeah. And or the weaknesses of the stars. And so they basically surrounded um, you know, whether it was KD, Steph, and Clay and Draymond, they basically surrounded them with a bunch of big lumbering centers and like defense first wings and guards, and not much shooting. And they kind of got away with that because, you know, Durant, Thompson, and Curry might be three of the five best shooters of all time. You know, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they had so much shooting in that in that core three that it didn't bite them until that final finals run, right? Where Durant gets hurt, Clay gets hurt. And you yeah. see the rest of this roster and you're going, geez, there's no one else who can score here. And they kind of, I think went into last off last season with a bit of that plan too. I think part of that was because they expected Clay to be healthy. And obviously he wasn't um, when he ended up um, tearing his Achilles. But um, the, the other part of it was, I think that was still sort of Steve Kerr has always, you know, he's, always preferred defense to offense. I think that's one of the things you look at, whether it's you go back even to his time in Phoenix, he's run these like high, he's built these high flying offensive teams, whether he was a GM in Phoenix or head coach of the Warriors. But when you look at a lot of the high flying talent and stuff he inherited, he actually has always tended towards more of these kind of defense, defense first, these Andre Iguodala, these Draymond Green type players. And so that's kind of, I think how last year went. And after they saw how clogged the offense was, they go, okay, this year, no, we're not going to build around Curry's quote unquote weakness on defense. We are going to build around his strength and that is shooting. And they went and got more shooting. Yeah. And I think you kind of touched on it. The first point that I was going to bring up and its main narratives and storylines, would you say, at least from my point of view, I imagine a lot of the focus going to the season, you know, besides Steph is, you know, Clay Thompson coming back and I guess how you hold the fort without him and then what he looks like coming back. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I guess in sort of a broad scheme, I think that's definitely the case, right? What does Clay look like when he comes back? I think the real big thing that though most Warriors fans, I mean, are excited about at the beginning of the season, obviously part of it is, I think, right, since we know no one's been expecting Clay to play at the beginning of the year for a while, he's kind of on the back burner right now. It's like, well, Clay will come back when Clay comes back and we'll see what he is at that point. Right now, I think the most exciting thing and most the largest storyline I think might be not someone they brought in this offseason, not someone they drafted, just Jordan Poole. And, um, you know, he, a first-round pick from a few years ago, had truly one of the worst rookie seasons in NBA history. <laughs> it was on the Warriors team that ended up finishing with the worst record in the NBA. And so he got a lot of playing time in that group, but just, you know, he was he had these flashes where you saw okay there is the ability with the dribble moves there is the ability the, the shot the shooting form looks good but the shots just didn't fall he just looked overmatched and it truly looked like the you know the Warriors had kind of not wasted a pick but it looked like they might have drafted a bust he starts off last year um, has a solid preseason and then just the regular season doesn't cut it for a bit goes down to the G League and then really just takes off and he's kind of blossomed ever since you know when the Warriors make their late regular season run last year that ends up you know, getting them on the verge of the playoffs, obviously losing um, the play, the play in games to the Lakers and Grizzlies, you know, pool was the second or third best player on that team to, to close the season. 
And this preseason, again, obviously this is when we can get into the conversation of what does preseason mean? You know, Poole might've been the best player in the NBA this preseason in terms of like statistical output. Obviously that's not, (laughs) obviously that's not who he is. Right. But you know, he averaged 35 points per 36 minutes. He, you know, about five rebounds, five assists, and he did it efficiently. He shot 36% from three. He shot 60% from two. He shot 87% from the free throw line. And, you know, you're looking at after going into last off season, I think a lot of Warriors fans are in the place of, okay, Jordan Poole, we found the Warriors have found their Lou Williams. They found their Jordan Clarkson, that spark bench scorer, right? And I think from what we've seen of Poole, um, and you know, there is starting to be more optimism and wonder about maybe there's more here. Like, you know, maybe he could be, you know, in a couple years, a CJ McCollum type player, right? Maybe there is more, like maybe this isn't a really good role player. Maybe this is actually a solid or above average um, starter. And I think, you know, this early part of the season when Clay isn't healthy, that's obviously pools going to be the second option on this team with the starting lineup behind Curry. And he's pretty much going to, looks like from the rotation we've seen this preseason, he's going to be the primary option in the second unit. So he's going to get a lot um, of airspace to really work and see what he can do. And this is ultimately still a really young player who is incredibly skilled. And I think the most interesting storyline of these first couple months of the season is seeing how Poole looks in this expanded role. Because obviously once Clay comes back, there's going to be some interesting rotational decisions. You know, Poole's obviously not necessarily going to have the offense or have as much uh, flexibility as he does right now. But I think this next month or two is going to be pretty, not huge, but key in sort of how we evaluate what Jordan Poole's potential is, right? Like if Poole, again, you know, if they've stumbled into like a six man of the year or, a, you know, just a player off the bench, you can count on to score 12, 13 points a game. That's still a big fine. Like that's still very valuable. But if he's something more than that, which, you know, I think he's he's had these flashes. And again, his breakout last year truly was so out of nowhere that I think watching what Jordan Poole becomes, I think that's become one of the most interesting parts of the season. While, you know, Thompson and I mentioned James Wiseman are both out with injuries to start. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of excitement around Pool from a bunch of different perspectives, how we look at it. But another storyline I wanted to just quickly touch on, um, and I'm not sure what the the rules are in California, but Andrew Wiggins, I know he got, oh, he got um, I've forgotten now. Did he get the, the shot or is yes, he still? Yes, he did. So the, yeah. yeah, so that was a running storyline leading up and then pretty much right before the day of the the day of the deadline, he didn't come to practice. And then they said it was like, he had some, you know, kind of under the weather uh, personal day. So there's speculation that came out, he did get vaccinated and he basically gave a comment that was sort of along the lines of, you know, he doesn't, you know, he wished he didn't have to, he, 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 yeah. he that was sort of, you know, his thing, but he did. So the Warriors will have him for all 41 games. Um, and don't get me wrong. They're in a much better position because of it. it his what um, looking at Wiggins though, This year, I think it could end up being sort of the requiem on Wiggins, the the that makes sort of Warriors fans turn on him is too strong of a word. But and I say that because last season I mentioned sort of the clunkiness of the roster. You know, you look at the starting lineup on day one, it was James Wiseman at center, who you know played two college games and ultimately would play his way out of the starting lineup, just struggling to adjust to NBA competition, as again is normal for a teenager. You know, you have Kelly Oubre, who, again, I think is talented, but was undeniably an awkward fit with the Warriors system and just clearly never meshed, right? 
Yeah. And so Wiggins really didn't get a lot of attention. And in fact, Wiggins for most of the season before Poole's emergence was the second option. And, you know, his kind of, you know, when you see Wiggins play, it's a lot of the ball's going to stop on him. He's going to isolate. He's going to take, excuse me, probably some bad twos, some contested twos, some contested threes, and he'll make more of them than you'd expect, but he's not necessarily going to be as efficient as you'd like, but he shoots a career high 38% from three, I think in part because Curry um, helped him with spacing. I think in part, you know, he might just had a career year from behind the arc, but this year, as I mentioned, you look at this roster and we go, okay, there's coming off the bench. Now you have Porter, you have Bialika, um, you know, probably when clay comes back, he'll start off the bench and eventually pool might be off the bench or uh, Thompson, you know, and Thompson will be back in the starting lineup. There aren't really that many players on this roster where you go, that player really locks up the offense. Like almost everyone now with the first eight, nine, 10 players in the rotation, like are very much warriors motion offense, Steve Kerr style players. And now Wiggins is the lone kind of exception in that group. And so last year, while Ubre and Wiseman really kind of Ubre, Wiseman, some other players on the roster really bottled things up, that meant when Wiggins isolated, even though it's not great offense, it was better offense. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, he was relatively, you know, better than most of the other options. Well, now Jordan Poole's going to be that second scorer. And, you know, Poole looks much more comfortable moving without the ball. He's a, he looks like a better catch and shoot player. He looks like a more comfortable passer. And I just wonder what Wiggins is going to look like with this team. Now, again, they partially need him just for his length and defensive ability. And, you know, he should be able to do that. But, you know, talking about Poole and his ceiling, it could be a very interesting discussion in six to eight weeks, depending on how the season starts. I would not be very surprised if we're having a conversation when Clay comes back about whether Poole or Wiggins should be the one who is removed from the Warriors starting lineup. I don't know how likely that is. Cause again, I talked about Poole could just regress and sort of be a bench scorer in his role, but I don't think it's out of the question that Poole gets off to a really hot start. Wiggins really struggles in this kind of new role, third option, um, and, and, uh, we're kind of having that discussion in a month, two months into the season. Yeah. Uh, is there a specific transaction that the team made over the last off season that you think will have the largest impact on the Warriors? Well, if you look at sort of last off season in, in a vacuum, you probably look at, you know, the number seven overall pick with Jonathan Kaminga, um, you know, that they acquired from the Minnesota Timberwolves when you go all the way back to when they acquired Wiggins in the D'Angelo Russell trade. Um, So now they essentially come away from the D'Angelo Russell trade with Andrew Wiggins and um, Jonathan Kaminga, you know, who's pretty, you know, a a pretty developmental prospect, right? Someone who's probably not going to contribute this season. Um, Looking though, at just sort of the moves they made in this off season, I think Otto Porter jr. Is easily the biggest, um, you know, not too long ago, he was a really good, you know, starting three for the wizards. Uh, then, you know, with the bulls and uh, obviously injuries and some other things have kind of stalled his career. But the one thing that's been true throughout is he could shoot. And, and I mentioned, that's been one of the things the warriors have been cautious. It seems like to surround Curry with, and now like Otto Porter is a, truly like a great you know to borderline elite shooter in the nba and now you're going to put him on the floor um you know probably coming off the bench with curry you're going to put him on the floor with pool and eventually you're going to be able to potentially put him on the floor with curry pool and clay thompson i mean that's just a lot of shooting now that they have porter looks you know it's hard to evaluate not only just because it's preseason but also because the biggest questions with you know there was a lot of porter hype he did have a fantastic preseason by the way but 
you know, I'm not shocked that he's shooting. Like even again, like I mentioned in his down years last year and the year before he was making three point shots. The issue was he struggled defensively. He couldn't handle the rigors of an 82 game season. And so, you know, the jury I think is still a bit out. I think Warriors fans might be a bit higher on Porter right now than I am. Not because I don't love him as a player, because I still think, look, ultimately whether he's athletic enough to hold up defensively against opposing wings, whether again, he's going to be able to play in 70, 75, 82 games, this season remains to be seen. But, I mean, if you look at it right on paper, Otto Porter's potential is more impactful than Andrew Wiggins this season for the Warriors, right? Um, you know, again, like if we do the whole if Wiggins struggles scenario, like if Porter does really well off the bench, like, you know, not too, again, like I said, not too long ago, Porter was one of the, you know, up and coming, really impressive young three and D style wing um, that they get for the league minimum. And so if he ends up just playing 12 to 15 minutes a game, making 38% of his threes and being a solid contributor all around, that's a great vet minimum signing. But, you know, he's shown us that there might be a little more in there. And obviously the Warriors would be you know ecstatic if that's what they get. Yeah, and I think with Porter, like you said, it mainly comes down to his availability. He's only played 98 games over the last three seasons. I think when yep. he's been healthy, he has been a valuable low-end starter, you know, role-player type guy. Exactly. Uh, and, and on this Warriors team, especially if you are holding until Clay gets back and then that's when you expect a trajectory goes up, a, a player like Porter is very, I think, important to at least, you know, mask some of the, the losses, at least the expected loss of Clay, at least for the, until he get returns. Yeah, and, and, and then once he returns again, you get to really think about, you know, we've talked, you know, again, it's five preseason games. Don't read into it too much, but Warriors averaged 53 attempted threes per game this preseason. The Jazz led the league last year attempting 43 threes per game. Now, obviously the Warriors number, I'm sure will come down a bit, but this Warriors team is going to jack a lot of threes. And that's something we probably associate with the Warriors again, because of Curry and Thompson and Durant. They actually, after really Curry's breakout season, the Warriors haven't shot a lot of threes and again it comes back to those role players those secondary players not being great shooters that's different this year and and again it's like when if it does come down to the postseason which I think you know we can get to and I think the Warriors you know should expect to be in the playoffs this year again it's like you know Steph Curry is going to be a problem right even you know all things you know are up in the air with Clay Thompson particular his defensive ability you know what he looks like in other aspects but I don't think anyone questions whether Clay is going to be able to shoot you know, so you have Curry, you have Clay, and again, we mentioned Poole. Porter's just another piece that, like, he's going to get forgotten. It's going to be impossible to forget about him because he's such a good three-point shooter. At the same time, he's on the court with Curry. We saw in, in one of the preseason games there was a, a sequence, and I think it's not the first time we're going to see something like this where – Porter had you know, made like three threes in the span of two minutes. He gets the ball in the corner, two defenders crash because he's open. And that leaves Steph Curry open for three <laughs> from the wing. And obviously I think we'll probably see a lot of the opposite of that too. Like it's just, you know, fans have kind of called for a while. The Warriors needed to surround Curry with shooting. Cause why would you not take advantage, yeah. advantage of a player with literally the most gravity in NBA history? And now they're finally doing it. And it's just, again, I, I'm, cautiously optimistic and really excited to see just what this looks like, because I think this is going to be a really dynamic offense. And then I guess following up from that, what does the best case scenario season look like for the Warriors? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think right now I'll say sort of, I guess I'll start with like the realistic expectation I have 
or maybe not realistic, but where I sort of predict them right now, I think it's pretty clear that the, you know, Denver, Phoenix, and Utah are in a tier of their own at the top of the West. I think they were one, two, and three last year. You know, I didn't, there's not something too significant for either of those teams that are making me question that too much. And to me, that's tier one. And to me, everyone after that, there's questions about. There's talent, don't get me wrong, right? The Warriors have Steph. They have all the things I've been talking about here. You know, the Lakers obviously have, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron James and you know recently acquired Russell Westbrook you know the Clippers if Kawhi Leonard's healthy you know like there's a lot of talent in the West but after those first three teams I really think the Warriors might be the deepest and the most talented I think right now I expect the Warriors to finish probably around that 50 win threshold fourth in the West and then you know at that point you see how it goes uh, depending on how the postseason matchups go but in terms of best case scenario I mean there's a world where they are a championship contender and win the title this year. I don't think, you know, again, you're talking about a team with Steph Curry, who's one of the best players in the NBA. You're talking about a team, you know, and again, as I've mentioned, has all the shooting right in a league that is more and more reliant on it. And you still have players, you know, like Draymond Green, who again, his offensive game has taken a huge step back over the past couple of seasons, but he is still a really impactful defensive player. And then you add in all this young talent, whether it's Jordan Poole, whether it's James Wiseman, whether it's, you know, Jonathan Kaminga or Moses Moody. And again, I think you should have cautious, you have low expectations for all of those players with the exception, probably a pool, but any one of those players could take a huge step forward. And then you're adding that to potentially Curry, Clay, Draymond. Um, And again, Wiggins who's a solid start. Like there's, there's already depth here before these young players step in. And if these young players step up, you know, that has the potential to really be, you know, the Warriors have been saying they want to do the Spurs thing, right? Where they have Duncan and and Ginobili and Parker. And then Kawhi Leonard comes along and really helps them extend the dynasty. And again, I think a lot of people are skeptical for right, for, for, you know, rightful reasons. Like that is, you know, every team wants to be the Spurs. No one else has been able to pull it off. But that isn't an unheard of scenario. It is possible, I think, to say that, you know, even if Poole doesn't like take some star turn, if Poole's just a really good bench scorer, if James Wiseman becomes, you know, takes a a big step forward in in year two and just to be like a solid rim runner and rim protector defensively, and then Curry still plays like an MVP, Clay comes back. He's maybe not the same player he is defensively, but he's he's competent. He's He's still average, above average perimeter defender. And you have Clay, you have Steph, you have Draymond and you have all of these other pieces. I mean, again, I think title is a realistic, um, you know, dream goal for this team. I I think as long as you have Steph Curry, um, regardless of the supporting cast, there's always going to be maybe not expectations, but aspirations. Um, Yes. But I guess obviously with the best case scenario, there's going to be a worst case scenario. So what's Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. I mean, I guess it centers on Steph's ankle or Steph's injury, right? Like if Steph gets hurt, this does change. Um, You know, I think... You know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I This team, again, because it sort of has more scoring, could handle, you know, Steph missing a month and, you know, probably tread water better better than we've seen these teams since Durant left. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, you mentioned the championship is because those aspirations come because of Steph Curry. If he's hurt, you know, that kind of goes away. And I think, you know, you have a scenario where, Pool regresses offensively. Wiseman doesn't take a step forward. Kaminga and Moody don't look ready to contribute. Um, Draymond Green uh, becomes sort of an offensive sieve. Wiggins becomes this, you know, kind of iso, you know, goes sort of reverts back to his Minnesota Timberwolves tendencies. And 
they're shooting but not much else and it just kind of you know fizzles into probably like somewhere in that seven to 11 seed, right about where they were last year yeah or maybe they sneak into the playoff play-in game maybe they're just a little outside um it, it just because again you know you're you're ultimately pretty reliant on players in their 30s um you potentially are going to be re- really reliant on a clay thompson who's coming off two major injuries and you know i'm very high on jordan Poole right now but you know, it's still basically heavily based on like a 15 game sample of NBA games. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, you know, five to 10 or about 15 games of preseason and G league basketball. So, um, I, you know, I think if, if pool regresses, like right now, I think a lot of this is riding on pool just because it feels like he gives the warriors offense a floor. They didn't have last year because when Curry wasn't on or when teams just keyed in on, on Curry, I mentioned Wiggins was the second best option. Wiggins is not a very good second best option in the NBA and pool looks like a legitimate, um, competent second option at the very least. And again, Curry is so good. I think that's enough to tread water until clay comes back and could potentially, as you talked about earlier, take it to another level. I think, you know, if you, obviously with every team, the worst case scenario involves injuries of some sort, but I think yeah. if you remove the injury uh, injuries out of that from just a pure wins and losses or play perspective, I'd say a worst case scenario for this team is like, because a lot of the reliance outside of Steph and Draymond is probably going to be on a lot of these younger guys or these career inconsistent guys like Wiggins and Otto Porter Jr., et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I can see a scenario, however unlikely, without injuries where the, the team maybe struggles a bit, you know, like you've said, Jordan Paul doesn't expand into that role as you perhaps hope, um, you know, Moody, Kaminga, Wiseman, they all look like the rookies or rookie adjacents yep. that they are. And it is probably another play in scrap. Um, but again, barring injury, I don't think that's going to be as likely because I don't think the team is deeper and more equipped um, to to throw a lot of different things. Whereas last year, maybe there was a bit of Steph and friends vibes around it, especially guys, the banner free agent or the banner acquisition last year of Ubre missing his first 25,000 threes or whatever it was. Yeah. I, I also think to the West, I've just am less scared of like I'm less impressed by the West of the Western Conference this year and I'm not sure that's just me but it it feels like a lot of the moves this offseason I mean again like the the I mean I'm not the first person is the Lakers Russell Westbrook trade is not like I didn't necessarily think made them a better team I'm I'm not you know sure about how that fits going to be with the Lakers um and again you look like the Clippers are dealing with Kawhi's injury like I also think it's not just a case of the reason like a play-in or just outside the play-in scenario seems unlikely to me it's not just the Warriors being better although I do think they are definitely clearly better in a number of spots I also think the West as a whole has gotten worse like I don't I think there's a lot of teams that coming into this year I feel less confident about than coming into um last year I don't know if it's gotten worse, but I agree there are questions. And I, when I recorded the Lakers version of this, um, uh, my friend Ryan O'Connell, who was my Lakers contact for this one, he basically said um, pretty much wasn't sure if Russ made them a better team. I think he said, you know, if you had offered him, like, because everyone thought they were making the Buddy Heald trade, right? Yep. And like that would have probably made them a better team, maybe not a better yes. talent level, but for what they're trying to do, Heald probably fits better. I also, just on a personal level, have seen far too much of Jason Kidd as an NBA head coach. And I know Luca yes. dra- Luca drags everything up regardless of, you know, what's going on around him, but I can just, and the Jason Kidd quotes coming out about him, you know, wanting to go away from the three a little bit, like, well, it worked really well for you in Milwaukee and this modern NBA, didn't it? So 
Yeah. I mean, Luke is going to drag that uh, that ship up regardless of whatever Jason Kidd does. And it's probably not going to be outstandingly intelligent what Jason Kidd does. But I still think Dallas has maybe more question marks than we're letting on here as well. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. They're they're one of the ones as well. And again, you know, um, we we aren't going to take this podcast in that direction. But you know, like Chauncey Billups and Jason Kidd for other reasons, I have issues with um, as head coaching hires this offseason. But with Kidd, like you mentioned, again, his trajectory did not his history does not seem like one that like again even basketball really made um, a lot of sense with Dallas. And again, I don't think Dallas got much better. And uh, you know, I mean, you know, you could say maybe Porzingis more removed from injuries. There's something yeah, else there, yeah. but. You know, that's kind of it for them because, again, like how much more can you expect from Luca? And I think what's happened with Dallas and Luca, and well, talk about tangents. Um, but, <laughs> you know, one of the things is Luca is I think Luca is a top 10 player in this league. I don't think he's a top five player, but I think Dallas is building around him like he's a top five player. Like I think they're really trying to do, you know, to Luca and Dallas what they did, what Houston did with James Harden. And I just don't think Luca is there yet. Now he could be this year, right? But, you know, I just don't think. I think Dallas kind of, you know, bet on Porzingis and sort of has bet on Luca to become something. And I think Luca's a great player. He's an elite player. But, you know, the margins between like, you know, to use a different example, Damian Lillard is an elite player, but there is a chasm that is significant between Damian Lillard and Stephen Curry. Like, you know, even among elite players, there are notable gaps between the impact they make. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so it's like, you know, I think Dallas in the place where I think they needed a coach who's going to come in and, you know, if they were going to fire Carlisle, do something a bit different or they need to make a big acquisition to feel better about them than I do the Warriors. Because, again, the depth and having Curry. And, yeah, I just didn't see that, you know, from, you know, around the conference, um, yep. you know, and so, yep. you know, um, yeah. Now, I think we've probably covered this question ad nauseum, and I think I know the answer, but uh, an underrated guy most excited for a breakout. Is the answer one, Jordan Poole? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> to if you want to twist it up, I'd say um, if we're – because I guess at this point, maybe in nationally Poole's underrated, but locally Poole yeah. ain't underrated. Everyone's on that train. Uh, Jordan, they got, they're going to have Jordan Poole MVP uh, shirts coming out soon, probably in Warrior <laughs> Land. Um, I, put, but- I put money on Jordan Poole most improved, just to let you know. Yeah. No, I actually, I, I genuinely think that that is, um, you know, probably a, has a pretty high chance to have, um, you know, rel- that's a good bet. Um, but I guess in terms of underrated, I think Moses Moody is um, the one I'd actually put my, um, you know, finger on of the underrated because, you know, Kaminga's the seventh overall pick, Moody's 14th. I liked Moody, frankly. I mean, it wouldn't have been a great value, but if, you know, Kaminga doesn't fall to them, if the draft plays out differently, I was kind of okay with them taking Moody at seven. I was high on him out of Arkansas. He was just, well, you know, he's a one and done young player, but he was really efficient. Like his numbers looked, you know, more like a juniors than it did um, a freshman in terms of like, you just saw a high efficiency um, from behind the arc shooting. And, you know, and again, as a freshman on a team that wasn't, you know, surrounding him with a lot of talent. Um, he also, his track record in high school, he was on like a really stacked high school team. And so he's kind of been a role player for much more of his career than you expect from a lottery pick. And so, you know, obviously I think people are going to be looking at Wiseman, looking at Kaminga, but if you asked me who I'm most confident in making an impact of Kaminga, Moody, and Wiseman, I might bet that Wiseman's going to get the most minutes just because of the depth at center on the roster compared to the depth at wing. But I think Moody um, has, has a really good chance to end up, you know, on maybe one of those rookie second teams because he's playing yep. 12 to 15 minutes a game, shooting 37% on relatively open threes and just kind of, you know, picking, you know, getting a few rebounds, like, you know, averaging like nine points and three boards and making a contribution that again maybe not 
isn't earth shattering, isn't you know super significant. Yeah. But we mentioned Otto Porter's injury history. We mentioned, you know, obviously Clay's injury history. Like that's just another wing who I think they might be able to trust if uh, other things um, don't fall out. Damian Lee's sort of more veteran in that kind of same space. He's been around a while. Yeah. Um, and, and he's, he, he's, I just think he's a really solid player who kind of gets overlooked a bit. But yeah, so Moody and Lee, I'd say in two different uh, ways, I'd say are the underrated guys to watch. Yeah. And on Moody, just quickly on Moody's, um, or whatever Charles Barkley called him, um, on his, I guess, chances for that one of those all-rookie teams. Um, you know, the fact that the Warriors probably be good, and if he's a, a decent contributor, maybe not numbers-wise, but, you know, playing his role and playing it well on a 50-win team or whatever, then that's going to drag up his narrative from, you know, fringe to maybe the voters go with that team success uh, fr- yeah. from an all-rookie perspective. But I guess... And, yeah, and I think, uh, again, with like Kerr has a tendency to fall in love with certain players and like really like certain players and give yeah. them more minutes. And some guys will disappear on the bench. Yeah. Um, and there's not always a great explanation for it. <laughs> Moody seems like a guy he's going to fall in love with though. He's already sure. compared Moody to Trevor Ariza, which coming from Steve Kerr is pretty high praise. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I think Moody's one who we could be like, you know, again, I like Damian Lee. I like a lot of these other guys, but it wouldn't shock me if Moody is the young player who Kerr likes and so sees more and more minutes as the season goes on. Yep. And I guess following on from that, um, is there one player on the Warriors that you think could win one of those individual awards? I think there's multiple. I think you mentioned Jordan Poole, most improved player. I think Steph Curry, MVP is always, yep. you know, you can't really count that out. I'm not sure how six man of the year eligibility works. Cause like how many games can pool start? Uh, it just has to be more, more off the bench than starting. There's no, so, yeah, actual... I mean, I think pool could end up in the six man of the year conversation. Clean sweep pool, most improved, most valuable. Yeah. Six I mean, it, it, <laughs> I mean, the, uh, I guess, you know, if we're doing like a real long shot, I, you know, auto Porter for six man of the year, wouldn't be a crazy um, outcome either. If he ends up, you know, he could, you know, the way Curry has rolled, um, excuse me, the way Kerr has rolled his bench, right. There was a time when Andre Iguodala was the six man, but he was playing more than two of the starters. Yeah. You know, if, if, Maybe the thing I was talking about happens or Wiggins struggles and Porter's good, but Kerr doesn't swap the starting lineup. He just plays Porter 24, 25 minutes a game. Yep. Then, then he, you know, he, he, he could uh, sneak his way into that conversation. Although again, I wouldn't call that like that. So yeah, pool for most improved, maybe six man. And then Steph for MVP are, are the obvious two. Yeah. I don't think Porter's probably going to have the, the numbers because the yeah. six man is the Lou Williams Memorial trophy. And that's exactly. all, he, it's all about numbers. So or Jamal Crawford yeah. Memorial trophy. So yeah. Um, unless it's a really left field, like the voters for some reason, look at, you know, all those really advanced like Vorp and Raptor and all that sort of well, stuff. But... He would. Yeah. I mean, it would take him like basically averaging like 15 a game and like still grabbing seven rebounds or something like yeah. that's just not reasonable to expect. No. Uh, now we've mentioned this, well not mentioned it, but we've skirted around it. So the wins lines from NBC that I'm looking at, the Warriors are 48 and a half. And that kind of puts them in the area of, Excuse me. Uh, it's one ahead of Denver, but it's behind, I guess, it's behind LA, Utah, Phoenix, but it's in the area of Dallas and Denver. One win each of those. On that figure, are you... 48? Wow. Dallas is 48 and a half. Yeah, Denver's 47 and a half. But yeah, Golden State's 48 and a half. Are you over or under? Yeah, I mean, I'd say over. I mean, I, I, I think this is a 50-win team. I think this is a 50, you know, that 50 and 32, 52 and 30, right in that range is, is um, where I see them. Because again, I, I see them finishing fourth, in a pretty strong, I think this is a top heavy West, you know? Um, So I think, you know, like, and you know, again, we can talk about how bad Houston is at the bottom, you know, San Antonio isn't going to be terrible because that's how San Antonio is, but you know, that's not going to be a super, you know, strong 
um, team. OKC is obviously still in the middle of what it's doing Minnesota and Sacramento, you know, I, I, I see that. And, you know, again, the Damian Lillard question in Portland, it's not, you know, it's not all the question that comes February Lillard is maybe being moved in some, you know, big deal. If he wants to make that decision for himself. And all of a sudden you have a pretty, you know, some bad teams at the bottom of the West. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think this is going to be a pretty um, top heavy conference um where again i think you know it's denver phoenix and utah at the top and of the teams that are remaining i think the warriors have the best chance to jump into that top tier um and and again to be you know and i think i'm undercounting the lakers a bit and again right if anthony davis and lebron james are healthy and good that you know they're going to be in that mix too but i just really don't like the rest of the lakers roster um you know i think what russell westbrook does for the lakers and what he does do and i'll admit is that if LeBron or and or AD have to miss 20 games, Russ will ensure they can stay near the top of the standings in a way they haven't in the past. Yeah. Like I genuine like that is going to be a genuine benefit in that if LeBron and AD, you know, missed a month or two months, has been the story of the Lakers, you know, in the years they haven't won the title, right? As LeBron misses some time, AD misses some time, or both of them miss some sure. time, and yep. they just tank. Yep. Having Russ means they won't tank anymore in that time. Hmm. I just don't, but the issue is when all three are healthy, I don't know how much better. I don't think even the peripheral players, you know, Kent Bazemore, who was solid on the Warrior last year, he now might be their third best shooter. And Bazemore's Ugh. good. You know, Bazemore's a solid player, but he is not. Like, I just think that, I just think they're going to be desperate to find shooting later in the year. And I think, you know, I think oftentimes depth wins in the regular season, star power wins in the playoffs. And I don't think the Lakers have great depth and so i just think i don't think they're gonna finish in that top three or four yeah um and so you know to me with Kawhi out the clippers are out of that conversation at least for now and so to me that leaves the warriors pretty much in close to a tier of their own and with the chance to push up into that denver phoenix utah tier which is going to have to be north of 50 wins in my opinion yeah i think it from a lines perspective the the lakers it's uh, the line is 52 and a half right so I just think the Lakers are primed prime for one of those, you know, generally coasting the regular season, you know, resting guys here and there. It's probably not going to, like, they'll make the playoffs comfortably, but I don't think it's going to be like a 53-win team. And I think, I guess with Denver's line, they're probably just discount uh, accounting for Jamal Murray not being there That's at true. the start. Um, That's true. So it was interesting though when you said that you kind of thought that was the tears, because um, I think that's pretty much how the lines have shaked out, maybe swapped Utah uh Denver and LA, sorry. Um, LA, yeah. But other than that, yeah, I, I'd say it's a pretty fair line for Golden State. I probably wouldn't touch it because it could be like 46 to 50 is probably like the range I'd have them at. Just... Yeah, I think that's fair. And and again, like, you know, we talked about, obviously you can't necessarily do predictions with this, but, no. you know, they don't, they don't be, they don't reach, reach 50 wins if Steph gets hurt, right? Probably, oh, no, of like, course not. For, for any significant time. So, you know, I think, you know, when you're looking at regular season, I mean, um, yeah, in, in terms of making the bet on it. But yeah, Lakers being at 52 Really, so I think, yeah, again, I think that's a lot of star power bringing money in on that line. And, you know, it's one of those things too, right? Where, like, you know, Murray is a really good player, but Jokic is ultimately who carries that team in Denver. And yeah. it just, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a betting guy, so I don't follow these lines closely. So it's just interesting <laughs> to me to, to see those lines where they are. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I guess, do you have a, I know on the list of questions I sent you, it says safe, mild, or bold, but I don't really bother with the first two. Have you got a bold prediction for the Warriors this year? 
oh man, do I want to make a Jordan Poole prediction? Um, <laughs> it's not, that's not even bold yeah, anymore, really. I, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the sad part is if this was like two weeks ago, because I was having this conversation with my dad, who's also a Warriors fan, I was telling him, I'm like, you know, I think people are really underrating what Jordan Poole's star potential is. Like, and I was thinking about it relative to like Kaminga and Wiseman where because they were these top picks, like a lot of the stuff around the Warriors is like, if one of these becomes a star and when you talk about Jordan Poole, it's like, and if he becomes Lou Williams (laughs) and it's like, you know, like that's all tied back to draft pedigree. Like he's shown more than what Kaminga and Wiseman have. Obviously he's an older player. Um, You know, I I think, I mean, again, I don't know if it's bold to say, I think the Warriors are going to be um, one of the three best teams in the West. I don't think that's that out there to say, but I just think, you know, I have a lot of confidence in the talent in this roster right now. Um, And again, you know, you're looking at some injured players. I actually, okay, I'll I'll make a bold prediction here. I think the Warriors will be a top four team in the West before Clay Thompson comes back. Okay. Um, I think they are, I think right now, um, and that's, you know, a lot of it's that confidence in pool. I think the Warriors aren't going to, uh, I think the Warriors have a chance to like be around the top of the standings for Clay to come back and for them to absolutely explode. If this yep. is like, if we're talking about top end scenarios yep. and I think, and um, you know, I'm, a, I'm at this point a believer in Jordan pool. And, <laughs> and I, and I think, and I think the other thing that will do is it, it also means they can be more cautious with Clay. So when Clay comes back, he only have to play. They might only have him play 15 minutes a game coming off the bench in January. And then, yep. you know, they can give him 20 and 25 and then become the postseason. He's playing 30, maybe 35 or whatever it is. So I just think a lot of those things, um, you know, there's a lot of injury questions, but there's no spot now with really the exception of Curry, where if someone gets hurt, it's not unreasonable to expect someone else to play a bigger role. If Wiggins goes down, Otto Porter's there. If Porter's down, Clay will come back at some point. Like, yeah. you know, there's all these pieces now that just seem so much more interchangeable. And again, that's not mentioning Moody or Damian Lee, um, who I like as well. And, you know, in sort of another thing to think about they still have their full mid-level exception and they have an open roster spot and so when the buyout market comes and these other things i think they're going to be really well positioned to if they do need another piece or if there's just someone who becomes available they they have a bit more flexibility um than they've had in the past as well to yeah you know to, uh correct whatever else is missing on, on this roster yeah I, I think my bold prediction for the warriors would be western conference finalists let's go with that yeah no i, I I'll, I'll i'll second that i'll second that yeah <laughs> Uh, before we let you go, do you have anything you want to promote? No, just uh, give me a follow on Twitter at Mad Deluki. It's my initials, so don't take it too personally. It's M A D D E L U C C H I. Like you mentioned, uh, I you know cover the Warriors over at Golden State of Mind for SB Nation. If you're a American football fan, you can also uh, follow. I write about the 49ers um, for uh, SB Nation as well, and I, I do some stuff on the San Francisco Giants for the baseball people. So if you're especially if you're a Bay Area sports fan, go on over to Twitter and give me a follow. And otherwise. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be talking basketball, talking sports, and you know, talking a little bit of some other things um, from time to time as well. All right, too easy. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show, and best of luck for the year. Hey, thank you very much. Have a good one. Here comes Chris Paul. The lob. The jam! Oh, what a monster jam by DeAndre Jordan! Oh, Look at Blake. Look at the bench. Lamar Odom walked all the way down to the other end of the floor with almost a sheepish grin on his face. (laughs) I want to see it again. This could be as good as anyone we saw from Blake. Okay, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season previews to talk all about the Los Angeles Clippers from 213 Hoops, it's Lucas Han. How are you? 
I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good to be here. Um, Clippers, how are you feeling? Just on general level. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, th- I feel I feel good. You know, it's it's kind of like, obviously the Clippers didn't uh, just come off winning a championship, but the Clippers had a really, when you lose Kawhi Leonard in the second round of the playoffs, it's both devastating uh, to your title hopes, to the emotional ride that a team is on, but it's also really liberating because the Clippers got to play those last two games of the Utah series, which they won without Kawhi and the Western conference finals with like all that weight of expectation off of their shoulders. Like no one would have blamed them if they, I certainly wouldn't have blamed them if they had lost games five and six to Utah and gone out of the second round in six games because Kawhi got hurt. What are you going to do? And when they got out of that series, I wouldn't have blamed them if they got swept by Phoenix because you don't have Kawhi Leonard in the Western conference finals and you don't have Serge Ibaka. And then if Zubac hurts his knee too, like what are you supposed to do? Right. So for them to get where they got was just kind of a joy ride. Like it was so the pressure was off, like no other Clippers playoff run in the last decade. And then this season, again, without Kawhi Leonard, you get this kind of, obviously the Clippers will miss him in a major way, but it's almost like, yeah, like, let's see how some of this stuff works. Like, let's take a chance on Justice Winslow. Let's take a chance on Brandon Boston. Let's take a, j- a chance on Isaiah Hartenstein. Let's give Terrence Mann some more minutes. Let's do a reclamation project for Eric Bledsoe. Like, the Clippers can kind of, they get to have a little more fun with their lineups, their rotations, their roster decisions this year uh, than they've been able to have in, in recent seasons. So that's going to be, I think it's going to be a little bit of, like, pressure off fun at least as long as they stay around like 500 if they start being really bad then it will kind of pressure back on a little bit it's odd that you say you know obviously the the lack of Kawhi for how long that's going to be kind of removes expectations and pressure it's a similar thing I've never heard about that for a team that's still expected to be in the mix maybe not the top of the conference but definitely you know avoiding the play-in etc you know top six seed because that sort of vibe I've heard is mainly around teams that are going to suck. So like Detroit <laughs> and Houston, Houston especially, because obviously they've had so much pressure for so long and, and now they're just kind of riding the wave of all these young guys. But to hear that about the Clippers is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think if the Clippers suck, then the pressure will be back on. There will be a lot of scrutiny, especially on guys like Paul George, because the team the team really shouldn't suck. Uh, they, they've got yeah. enough talent, enough veteran experience. But I think if they're like, you know, you look at a lot of places, you see them predicted anywhere from like six through nine in the West. I think as long as they're in that that range, even if they are looking like a play-in team, I don't think there's going to be a ton of scrutiny like the Clippers are underperforming, you know, whatever. And I think it'll be pretty easy for them to get into the like low to mid 40s win-wise just yeah. because of the veteran depth that they have. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, I, it's hard for me to see them it, like short of, you know, knock on wood, like a Paul George injury. It's hard for me to see them falling short of like 500. And I don't think that they'll get very much criticism if they finish 500. And I think the Clippers maybe in years gone past, you know, over the last five, 10 years or so, maybe not the easiest team to root for as a neutral once your team was eliminated. <laughs> as a, and maybe this is a little bit different for me as a, and I don't like, I feel like I've brought Detroit up in every episode I've done of these, but as a Detroit fan, you know, supporting Detroit West with, with Reggie Jackson's oh, yeah. explosion. And I guess, you know, Luke Kennard, Marcus Morris, uh, just a bunch of guys that for some reason sucked when they were all together for us, but then they joined LA and then all of a sudden they're world beaters and Reggie Jackson, especially like that just came out of nowhere. It, it did. Yeah. I mean, the Reggie thing really was 
remarkable because even in his first season with the Clippers, he was quite, quite bad. And in that first playoffs, this is how, because, you know, you know, Reggie Jackson, if you have, you know, Pistons fans, listeners, you guys know Reggie Jackson. He shot in that first playoffs with the Clippers, he shot 57% from three. (laughs) And he was so bad that he got benched shooting 57% from three because he couldn't like do anything besides just make wide open three pointers. But then he, he comes in the second season. It's really interesting story. Ramona Shelburne at ESPN did a great job talking about this. He is thinking about maybe not even playing basketball anymore. He's not getting a lot of interest from teams. I think on the eve of training camp, he decides, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back. And he signs a, a training camp deal with the Clippers ends up being the starting point guard through a Western conference finals run. And he talked at length about just kind of feeling like this, the Clippers organization empowered him. Um, And I think, you know, not to make it about the Pistons, but there was definitely some subtext there considering (laughs) where he had, he had previously been in his career, feeling like the Clippers organization empowered him to be himself, that he was loved and accepted and embraced, you know, him and Paul George are very close. I think that that has really been a, a beneficial thing psychologically for both of them to be playing together. And I, you know, it also just takes some time. Like it takes a certain amount of runway after having major injuries to get back to full free flowing confidence. And I think Reggie, you know, I don't know what we're going to see from him this season. I don't think he will be quite uh, what he was in his peak time with the Pistons because physically he's not that guy anymore. But I do think that in terms of confidence uh, and just kind of being in the right headspace, he is on cloud nine with this organization right now. And that really does matter a lot when it comes to getting, you know, the most possible production out of a role player. I, I reckon the final straw for Reggie in Detroit was when the team announced that he was doing a meet and greet at uh, Applebee's and <laughs> all the replies, which is, I don't know if you've seen this. This is a couple of years ago. Now. I have, oh, I have absolutely seen this. Yeah, all, all the replies were just fans, you know, saying if he comes, I'm pulling up and, you know, doing this yeah. and the other. I was like, Jesus Christ. Um, but let's, let's not make this a Reggie retrospective because I absolutely could do that if I wanted to. <laughs> but on, on a Clippers level, generally, maybe it's national media or the fan base, but is there a main narrative surrounding the team heading into the season? Yeah, I mean, I think the big, if the, if you had to dilute it into one question, it would be, you know, when will Kawhi come back? Because he did say, you know, he signed that a longer term contract this summer and he said on media day, he felt like if he signed a one year contract, because so the Clippers only had him for two years, right? He's, he can only sign a four year deal. Next summer, once he's been with the team for three years, he could sign a five year deal. So there's a lot of speculation, including for me, he would take that one year deal and then get the five year super max Chris Paul, eight bajillion dollar contract next summer. Right. He said on media day, he felt like if he took the one year deal, he would be, it would make too much sense to sit out the whole season to protect himself for next summer's free agency market. And he didn't, he doesn't want to sit out the whole season. So that's why he signed a longer deal to provide himself some security so he could return. You look at the timeline of his surgery, nine months from the surgery is going to be like right around the end of February, beginning of March. It just kind of feels like he at very least is going to make a really strong push to play this season. And so the big question is going to be like we were talking about a minute ago, if the Clippers can hover around 500, seventh, eighth, ninth place in the Western conference and Kawhi can come back. When can he come back? How good can he be? How long does he need to shake the rest off? Where can this team be by the time the playoffs begin? Because if they can get to like a six 
with 100% Kawhi Leonard, then they could be just as dangerous as any other team in the NBA. But there's so many unknown variables with his recovery and with the team's performance in the months in between now and then that, I mean, really all you can do is wait and see. And I guess are you holding out breath that you will see a 100% Kawhi this year? I, I mean, yeah, you abs- that's absolutely what the Clippers have to be hoping for. What are the odds of that, you reckon? Oh, I mean, I'm not a doctor, you know. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I do think, uh, and this, you know, this point has been made by other folks in Clippers media. We know Kawhi, you know, anyone who's followed his career knows that he does things his own way at his own pace, his oh. own timeline. And when he says, I made this contractual decision based on wanting to return to the basketball court this year, that means that there's a lot of reasons to believe, or a lot of, you know, however many hundred million reasons to believe that <laughs> it's important it's it's important to him to get back on the court this season. Yeah. So that may not be possible. Coming back from ACL is really tricky. One snag in the rehab process, one slight re-injury could set him back a month and make it to the point where he doesn't have enough time to get warmed up going into the playoffs. He has to miss the whole year. So it's not a given, but I think there's a lot of reason to feel confident or feel optimistic just because Kawhi himself is so determined. And that really matters a lot. Yeah. And I guess I've just been around the NBA, not around the NBA, but I've watched the NBA too long now to know that the best case scenario like almost never happens <laughs> with this sort of thing. Um, and it's, I'd love to see Kawhi back at full strength because I think the Clippers at full strength adds another interesting wrinkle into a pretty stacked top of the West. Um, but I, I'm not going to put money on it, obviously, um, it, even, even if a market like that existed. Now, is there a transaction that the team has made this offseason that you think will have the largest impact on the team? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the obvious one here has to be the Eric Bledsoe trade because you look at guy Bledsoe, the Clippers did not give up a ton to get him. Patrick Beverly, I love Patrick Beverly. I love watching Patrick Beverly play, but he just, his availability has restricted him from being a major consistent contributor over the last couple of years for the Clippers. He was great in the 2021 playoffs against Utah and Phoenix. He was phenomenal, but he also only played about half the team game, team's games last year. And in doing so, a large portion of the games he did play, he was going about like 60% intensity on a minutes restriction while he was rehabbing injuries. Yeah. So th- you just didn't get a lot from Patrick Beverly. Bledsoe is a guy, you look at his time, if you, if you set aside that New Orleans year last year, which was, uh, you know, mentally he was not was engaged bad. with that team. It was bad. It was bad all around. Everything was bad in New Orleans last year. But you look at Milwaukee, the three years, he's on a great team. He's putting up like 16, five and five, all defense, two of those three years, playing in almost every game across those three years. The playoffs are the playoffs, you know, and the, and we know that both he and the Bucks had their fair share of struggle in the playoffs during those seasons. But right now the Clippers are trying to, you know, we're talking about a team that, right, we were just talking about maybe six, maybe seven, maybe eight, maybe nine. So first you want to make sure that you can get there. Like, can you actually get to six and avoid the play in tournament? That would be a pretty remarkable regular season outcome. I think Eric Bledsoe with what he has brought to some really good regular season bucks teams in recent years 
could be a really major contributor, maybe even the number two most important overall contributor behind Paul George for this Clippers team to get to a place where like maybe they do finish in the sixth seed and can avoid the playing. Do you reckon Bledsoe likes touching people as much as Beverly likes touching people? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. When Bledsoe was announced that he was being traded for by the Clippers, was there any fans that were like, oh, not this again? Uh, I don't know about not this again, because when Eric Bledsoe was on the Clippers originally, he was a huge fan favorite. Um, I mean, pe- people loved Eric Bledsoe on the Clippers as a young player. There was some disappointment because Patrick Beverly was also very beloved and because the nature of how Bledsoe's year with the Pelicans went kind of meant that people were down on him. Uh, yeah. Understandably so. He had a really down year. But I do think I think that generally once, you know, the shell shock wore off, most Clippers people, uh, whether they love the move or don't love the move, at least kind of see the logic behind it in terms of what Bledsoe brings you as a ball handler and scorer and creator that Beverly doesn't and what kind of holes the Clippers have to fill with Kawhi missing much of the year. So I don't know. I don't know how successful the Bledsoe thing will be. I mean, I just told you kind of like what could be so great about it. He could be the second most important guy on the team. He could also be a rental, you know, that contract is really team friendly, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Clippers fans for the most part are happy to, to have Eric back in LA. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree with your assessment that this is a really good regular... Like the playoffs, we don't know what's going to happen, but a regular season move that's probably none that the Clippers could have made that would have been better than what Bledsoe does. Because yeah, Bledsoe was a part of some really, really strong Milwaukee teams as a key contributor. So I think if the best case scenario, and we'll get to this in a second, but if it is, you know, treading water and, you know, lucky or not lucking into, but fighting into that sixth seed, it's probably going to be a large part of uh, Eric Bledsoe will be a large part of that. But I guess what, what is that best case scenario then? I mean, I think the best case scenario for the Clippers this season is a championship. Uh, and I think, I think to get there, you know, walked through a minute ago, you Kawhi, you get lucky with Kawhi's rehab, not just that he's able to come back, but he's maybe doesn't hit very many setbacks, can get ahead of schedule. If he can come back early, if he can come back in February, get more games under his belt, increases the chances he's a hundred percent really in a rhythm capable of handling a full minutes load by the time you get into the playoffs. And that's one side of it. The other side of it is you need to get the most out of a guy like Eric Bledsoe. That's why I kind of like Ty Lue's decision to start Reggie Jackson and Eric Bledsoe together. I'm not sure if that lineup will be great, but we've just talked about how Reggie Jackson is in such a great place kind of emotionally with this Clippers team right now, how Eric Bledsoe was mentally checked out in new Orleans last year. And he's a guy you need on board. Well, put, you know, benching one of those guys could have had kind of negative effects to start the season. I don't know if they'll stay in the starting lineup, but you need to get the most out of those guys. You need Terrence Mann and Luke Kennard to both kind of continue their progression. You need Marcus Morris to have a good scoring year. You need to avoid some bad injury luck because if you start missing two or three of these guys at a time, you're going to really be short on firepower. I mean, the Clippers will need to get lucky. Any team to win a championship needs to get lucky. The Clippers may be more so than most because of what they're facing with Kawhi's recovery. But if you can survive that non-Kawhi period, get the most out of your role players, stay healthy, be in a good position, get Kawhi back a little bit early, get him fully up to speed, There's no reason for me to think that this team 
couldn't go into the playoffs and go on a run uh, just like in any other year. So that's, that's probably the best case scenario. I don't think it's totally within the Clippers control to make that best case scenario happens. I think it will take luck, especially when it comes to Kawhi's rehab uh, progress and timeline. But I think it's uh, at, at least realistic. Like I think it's possible that that series of events could play out. Yeah, it's it's not likely, but I think, you know, when you give the best case scenario where it's everyone has fun and they get bounced in the first round, that's kind of boring. And I think <laughs> that there is definitely a path, like we've spoken about ad nauseum, you know, Kawhi coming back early or, um, you know, even on schedule and looking like Toronto Kawhi or LA Kawhi, first LA Kawhi, whatever. There's a universe where, that's hap- where that happens, you know, with a fair amount of consistency, right? Like if you ran a bunch yeah, of I mean, you think the, you know in the multiverse, yeah, it, it happens. Six to nine, six to nine month partial ACL recovery would bring him back in February or March. Yep. You know, does he does he have a setback? Whatever you can't, but like I think as long as the Clippers are in position, it, it makes all the sense in the world that he would be able to come back this year. Yeah, and and every best case scenario obviously involves varying degrees of luck and things breaking your way or you know, other teams yeah. hitting snags. This it's the best, other. right? Like, yeah. It's, it's the, yeah. It's the, like the Detroit could win a championship if everyone else, well, if, if, if 29 other asteroids hit there. The, the, <laughs> um, and then I guess, obviously it's pretty obvious, but what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. So if you, if you look past that kind of like uh, Kawhi comes back championship, blah, blah, blah scenario. Really, the objective for the Clippers this year is be competitive because they don't have any draft picks for the rest of time. So there's no point in not being competitive. <laughs> but also, I mentioned earlier, they they felt like they could take a little, you know, play some more gambles with the roster construction this year in terms of Justice Winslow, in terms of right more minutes for Luke Kennard and Terrence Mann, the rental for Eric Bledsoe, drafting a lot. Guy, They have a younger roster uh, in terms of their depth than they've had in previous seasons. So the goal this year is probably more so stay competitive and figure out who's going to be a part of this team for like the three-year window that opens up next season when Kawhi Leonard is going to be back at full strength. And I think in that regard, the worst case scenario that the Clippers could have here is, um, aside from injury, because that's not really a fun word. Like, yeah, obviously worst case scenario is Paul George has a catastrophic injury, right? But like, aside from that, the worst case scenario for the Clippers would be that they really struggle this year and that these role players all kind of underwhelm and you head into next season, not feeling confident in Reggie Jackson, not feeling confident in Eric Bledsoe, Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard, Marcus Morris, and really feeling like you don't know who your core of guys is going to be around Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. So if the Clippers can't at least accomplish that now, it doesn't have to be everyone. It may be Luke Kennard is the guy that they're like, yeah, we're trading him next summer. He's not fitting in here how we want, but if it happens widespread and they really are like, we don't know who our best eight guys are going into next year that we feel like we can win a championship with, then a lot of the experimentation that they've had the opportunity to do this season will be kind of wasted. Yeah. Is there a, and I guess this kind of flows nicely into this, but is there a younger guy or underrated guy that you're excited for a breakout? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, Terrence Mann is the obvious answer here. If, if he still counts as a younger guy, he's going into his third season, but he, he turned 25 today, actually, as we record this. Um, he just signed an extension with the Clippers. But if we're going to go a little more obscure, I think Brandon Boston, who the Clippers got late in the second round, has a lot of talent. And 
he's, he's been performing well in training camp in preseason. So I, I don't think he's going to be a major piece for them, but he's a guy who I think, you know, that, that happens for every NBA team every year. You get a few weeks into the season, two guys at the same position are injured and you kind of look down the bench and you go, okay, someone's got to play 18 minutes tonight. Right. Yeah. And I think Brandon Boston has done well enough in these early stages to be someone who the coaches will actually look to in a situation like that compared to some of the other young guys, I feel like are probably going to be stuck in the, in the G league for a little bit, but Brandon Boston, I think the coaches will, will like be, yeah, let's give, let's give Brandon 18 minutes tonight and see how he does. And he just has a lot of talent. He can score the basketball in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that he's going to be, I don't, I'm not saying he's going to be a breakout star for this team or anything, but I think that he's going to have some nice moments this season. Uh, and it could be a situation where the Clippers, he could position himself that the Clippers feel like, yeah, maybe he is like a second unit guy next season. Do you think it's more likely that Boston plays a little bit more this year than someone like Keon Johnson then? Yeah, I think, I think that Boston will, will, I think they'll go to Brandon before Keon this season. Now when they need help on the wings. Yeah. And I think I have to ask this question because you're a sports blogger. I'm a sports blogger. And then Jason Preston gets drafted off the internet. Basically. <laughs> that, that was a cool story when that emerged. Um, obviously he's been at college for ages now and it, it, he hasn't blogged in years, but when that came out, I think every internet boy was like, Oh my God, there's, there's hope for me yet. Yeah. I mean, I was ready to to put my sneakers on and go try out. <laughs> I know, I know a lot of G League teams have open trials, and maybe that's, how, <laughs> that's Okay, it. never mind. I take it back. I'm not actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was only willing to say it until it was real. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass myself. But do, do you have any expectations for Preston? Uh, probably not. Well, you, well. so the tricky thing, first of all, I, I don't think that there was really any expectations for Preston this season. But um, he also had a foot surgery a couple of weeks ago. He's going to miss most, if not all, of the season. Uh, so it's really, really ends up being a redshirt year for Jason. Uh, so the, the objective for him really is, you know, you're on a team, you're coached by Ty Lu, right? Uh, obviously a great guy to study under as a young point guard. So uh, just kind of stick around as close as you can to all the huddles, all the film sessions, learn as much as you can and get healthy and try to come in next season and, and kind of make an impact because, you know, it's really hard as a second round rookie who misses the, your entire first season. Year two is really make or break. Because yeah. most teams aren't going to give a, aren't going to invest a third year of a roster spot into a second round rookie who hasn't shown them anything in years one and two. So he's got a really like starting today, starting two weeks ago, everything is about once you get to training camp next fall, how can you make the biggest impression possible? Yeah. Typical blog boy hasn't even played the game. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> if there's a guy on the Clippers that you think is in line to win one of those individual awards and we can include, you know, all-star and all NBA and all those sorts of things in this as well. But is there one guy that stands out? Well, I mean, Paul George will, will be an all-star and he'll be on an all NBA team too. Um, As long as the Clippers make the playoffs, he will have played well enough to be on all NBA. And I feel, I feel pretty confident in that happening, but I think that Ty Lue has a really good chance at coach of the year this year, because you know, the, the coach of the year voters love that like low expectations team. Yep. And I think that the Clippers, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't necessarily mind it. Cause like we talked about at the very beginning pressure off, you know, breathe easy, kind of a good thing, but I kind of feel like the Clippers are, are being a little bit underrated 
um, which I know is shocking to hear from a Clippers <laughs> fan. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see them right in that mix. You know, you talk about like a team like Denver that is missing Jamal Murray for, you know, maybe as much of the year as the Clippers are missing Kawhi Leonard. A uh, team like Dallas hired Jason Kidd. I mean, it's hard to take that even seriously, it's, right? It, it's it's unbelievable how often Jason Kidd has come up in this series on the, <laughs> on the non-Dallas versions as reasons why Dallas will probably suck for even accounting for Luca being Luca. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad that I'm not alone on that Island. Um, but, no. but I mean, I, I think the Clippers can be right in the mix with a lot of these teams. That doesn't mean that they won't end up finishing ninth in that cluster, but I think they could finish in the five or the sixth spot. I mean, that would be, it would be overachieving. I think to get all the way up to five, it would be really, really impressive if they managed to do that. But you, you look at it, it's going to come down to getting the most out of a lot of guys that people think are like kind of number fours right? Like the Clippers have one number one, or I guess maybe people think PG is a number two and then a lot of number fours. And like yeah. one of those guys is going to be second on the team in scoring. And it's going to be a big story about how Ty Lue got the most out of Eric Bledsoe or Reggie Jackson or Marcus Morris this year. Right. Yeah. So I, I just think I could see the Clippers exceeding expectations a little bit. I don't think is, I think like Finishing two spots, a lot of people have them eighth or ninth. I think finishing in six or seven is really, really attainable for them with the talent level they have on the roster and the veteran, you know, the amount of veterans that they have. Yep. And then, you know, the, there's going to be a lot of narrative in favor of Ty Lue. So a lot will depend on what else happens around the league. You know, you never know uh, who has a great season and just kind of skyrockets that coach to the top of the conversation, like Tibbs last year, you know, or, or um, Monty last year as well. But I think Ty Lue has a really, I think that things are aligned nicely for him to end up in the mix there. And, and this is probably, you know, extremely unlikely, but if the Clippers were to drag themselves into, you know, let's say fifth, there'd surely be maybe not favoritism, but a little bit of chatter around an outside shot at MVP for Paul George, right? Yeah, I think they might need to do better than that, honestly. Um, yeah. You, you know, I I think if they could get into like top three, there would be a lot of chatter there. But a lot will depend on how it plays out. You know, some folks have asked me if the Clippers get a second all-star this year, who would it be? And I think like in order for the Clippers to get a second all-star, they'll have to be in first or second at the West going into the all-star break. Like otherwise, they're t- otherwise the voters are just going to say, oh, we'll just go to someone else, right? Uh, but if you are all the way up there, then when someone's got a name and injury replacement, they go, well, the Clippers don't have a second guy. And you could get like, that's where you could see like Reggie Jackson getting the same, you know, like what Mike Conley got last year, which was not really uh, merited, but just kind of reputation and the team is winning and he was good. They know, just wanted to get good. rid of the, can you believe Mike Conley is now yeah, right. an all-star <laughs> narrative. And I can't believe that Reggie Jackson has, has not made an all-star. So I, um, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so uh and well did you watch him in the playoffs last year i mean but I but i know i think i think that um yeah it, it would take i don't think that the team is set up around paul george strongly enough for the clippers to be good enough for him to get that type of mvp consideration for you know leading them sure but there is an outside there's always an outside chance and i'm oh yeah of course yeah and if he averages 35 a game, then you never know. It's LA. I think it's more likely that the Clippers win the championship than Paul George wins MVP. Oh, okay. That could be the bold prediction that I was about to ask you for. <laughs> um, well, I don't, I'm not saying either is very likely. I just think that <laughs> well, that's, that's one is more likely than the other. 
That's why it's bold. Now, uh, the Vegas win lines, and I ask everyone this, I've just got a list of from NBC up in front of me. The Clippers are set at 44 and a half. And you mentioned earlier uh, they could win that low to mid 40s range. So it's probably a tough line for you to pick, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I, I just like overs, you know. I love the over. Uh, it's no fun to play the under, right? So, Life's too short, yep. So I, I, t- I take the over. I think, you know, 46 is a good number for this team. And if Kawhi Leonard comes back, you know, that you could really see them. The, the schedule is built in, in a little bit of an advantageous way for this. It starts softer for the Clippers and ends harder. Yep. And they could potentially be much better for the last two months of the season if Kawhi Leonard is playing in those two months. So it could work out in a, in a way that's really advantageous for them in that sense. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I would pick probably over the 44 and a half, but I, I mean, I would probably as a better, like actually as a better not touch it because <laughs> you're, you're a Paul George ankle sprain away from going, you know, four and 12 over the course of a few weeks and uh you know that's that's it on the on the over right yep. so uh i i would stay away from it with that sense because i think the clippers are are just a little too close to like one you know it doesn't even have to be like a, a paul george achilles like it could be a paul george ankle sprain that sets him out for four or five weeks and that could cost like easy cost the clippers six or eight wins um and really mess up that total yeah I, look, I've, i'm putting together a couple of things but i wouldn't yeah clippers is probably one of those lines where it's too volatile for me to actually look at uh and like i said uh i know the the thing i sent you had a safe mild or bold prediction but let's be real here no one cares about a safe prediction so have you got a bold prediction for the clippers this year um well i mean i did tell you that i thought they were more likely to win the championship than paul george would win mvp but no, I don't I don't really have a bold prediction for the Clippers this year. I'm I'm coming up short on this one. And I think part of it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is there's just not so much pressure on them this year. Like it's a lower stakes season for the Clippers in a lot of ways. And having gone through like I know we got a little bit of a break after the Lob City era, but having gone through that Lob City era and then these last two years, like it's just been a lot of pressure on the Clippers for like a decade. And it, I think it's good for them to have kind of a reloading year. And that means that the, that these predictions are going to be a little bit milder because the stakes aren't quite as high, but I do think, uh, you know, some of the bold predictions that you hear about like Luke Kennard breaking out and like, I have a hard time seeing that. So maybe, maybe my, I don't know how bold this is, but my prediction, uh, in this, uh, you know, I like Luke Kennard. I don't dislike Luke Kennard at all. I have no, nothing against him, but I just think he's probably the one of the big things that the Clippers learned this year about their supporting cast is that Luke Kennard is not going to be a part of it when they try to win a championship in this next window. Oh, that's tough to hear. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, my... he's not no kind. Why? What's what's his deal with like like not shooting? Like was that a thing in Detroit? He's just scared. Um, look, the team sucked, so <laughs> I, I can't say there was ever. I don't think it was not shooting. It was. The, with Detroit, I think it was more they didn't get him enough shots. And it was the same with Tobias Harris. He'd like have 12 shots at the half and be on fire and then finish the game with 14. So I was someone, someone told me that with Detroit, it was a thing where like when he was on the court and Derek and Blake weren't, he was amazing. But when either Derek or Blake was out there, he was just so passive 
Yep. That and deferential. And th- this is exactly what it's like with the Clippers too. He's had his moments last year, like really great games, but a lot of like catch the ball, freeze scared, dribble backwards and throw it back out to Paul George at the half court line. And it's like, you got to be able to play within the flow, man. Um, yeah. And just as the season went on, he just was, he hit shots. He hit a bunch of threes last year. It's not like he was cold shooting the ball, but he never was able to get going within that flow of the team. And I, I genuinely really do hope that he figures that out this season, but I am uh, going to need to see it to believe it at this point. Yeah. I, he never really took over and he definitely has that capability to, it was just, yeah, like you said, he deferred a lot to, and the Detroit was really poorly built with a bunch of ball hogging, <laughs> like, even Reggie as well when he was there. So yeah, it was a bit of a mess. Canard um, never really got it, I guess. Uh, how about this for a bold prediction? Reggie will average 25 and make the all-star game. There you go. Uh, yeah, sure. That'll be yours and I'll stick with mine. <laughs> but I have nothing riding on the clip so I can say outlandish things <laughs> like this. Uh, have you got anything to plug before I let you go? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're interested in checking in on how the Clippers are doing this season, 213hoops.com is the blog. If you put 213hoops into literally anywhere that you find podcasts, you'll see our shows. Um, the Lob the Jam, the podcast is our, is our main one that we nice. do, um, that I do. So uh, feel free to check it out if you enjoy it. We've got, a, we've got actually coming out this week a really great uh, season preview that we do called Around the Beat where we talk to a bunch of different folks who cover the Clippers for different outlets and ask them all the same questions uh, to see how ever, you know, kind of take the temperature of the beat and introduce the beat writers to all the fans. So that sounds like something that might interest you. Make sure to check out the Love the Jam podcast. It's a, that's a great name for a podcast as well. I really enjoy that one. <laughs> well, we've got, we've got, uh, you know, it's Ralph Lawler, a legendary yep. Clippers announcer does the Love the Jam. And yep. he, he had, he did our intro for us for the show. Oh, that's, too. that's great. That's awesome. Uh, well, other than that, yeah, we appreciate you coming on the show to talk Clippers and best of luck for the season. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. And J.R. Smith already shirtless. <laughs> Final seconds here in this NBA season. The respect from those two. And that's it. It's over. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble. And banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters. All right, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season preview to talk about the Lakers. It's the elite level fraud himself from the Raw, Ryan O'Connell. How are you? Hi, Ben. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, no, mate. Sure. Yeah, I thought, I thought I'd give you something special. Uh, your words, not mine. But yeah, how are you? <laughs> Very well. Ah, uh, the Lakers, that poor, downtrodden, struggling franchise. How are you feeling about them? <laughs> Yeah, look, we're probably after high draft picks this year, probably going to tank the entire season. You know, that's like, there's a Detroit fan, wouldn't you? Oh, settle down. I just love the, uh, there's already the discourse starting about like Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball doing well. Oh, well, why couldn't they just the Lakers? Like, shut up. You won a ring two years ago. What is this? <laughs> they did do it for us. They just weren't good enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Lakers are probably the most narrative driven team of the entire NBA. And especially when you've got LeBron and Anthony Davis, there's always going to be some sort of media BS surrounding them or over-optimistic fans. Um, So what's the most prevalent narrative for the Lakers this year? Yeah, look, being a Lakers fan, the strength, you know, one of the pros of being a Lakers fan is you're never short of coverage. Probably the most covered covered team in the entire NBA. So you're never short of content. You can always read something. You can always 
watch something. Uh, the downside is they're the most current team in the league and you can always read something. You can always see something. <laughs> and this year, it's been pretty consistent what the narrative is. So you've probably read this before. You've seen this before. But the prevalent narrative is just how is Westbrook going to fit in? Um, there was, you know, decisions on what was going to be the makeup of the roster this year. They went a different direction than what everyone thought they were going to be after Westbrook. Uh, and the fit with LeBron and AD has been all anyone's talked about all off-season. And I dare say that's still what we'll be talking about when we come playoff time. All anyone's spoken about, and with good reason, because it doesn't necessarily work on paper. You know, the, the spacing is going to be an issue. The original trade that everyone thought they were going to make for about 24 hours before the Westbrook trade was for Buddy Heald. And I still think that was just a much better fit, just an elite catch-and-shoot, three-point shooter, uh, just much better fit so but they went with Westbrook you know they they always want superstars that's their strategy has been for 30 odd years and they're going after that strategy again, and they're just going to try and make it work on the fly and I guess that that's the narrative and it will be for a while I think I can't, I'm looking at the roster now I can't believe you know Westbrook's earning bags of money uh, I just can't he's the most paid player on the Lakers I didn't even realize that that's a lot of money in three guys there yeah it is a lot of money to be tied up in three players but you know quality players. I mean, depending where you sit on AD, you're probably, I don't know, where do you have him? I have him about fifth or sixth best player in the league. LeBron's in top two or three. And Westbrook's faults is probably still top 20, top 25. So you should be forking out that much money for three players that are in the top 25 players uh, in the league. I mean, they don't fit too well together, but, you know, that talent costs money. So I can understand why they're forking out bags of money for those three. Yeah, and I guess with the <clears throat> with the bags of money that they're earning, then you you got to fill out the roster with a bunch of cheap guys. And I think because we were speaking about this, you know, over the last month, but when the signings started rolling in, all those minimum guys, you know, your your Kent Bazemore's, your Malik Monks, your Wayne Ellingtons, uh, it was an interesting interesting strategy to fill out the rest of the roster. Yeah, I actually thought they did pretty well. So after they got Westbrook, with the amount of money, as you said, that there's tied up in those three players, they're going to have to get some pretty uh, some players on some pretty cheap contracts. I think Palinka did pretty well after that. But move I would have made to begin with the Westbrook one. But thereafter, I think they've put together a pretty good roster from four to twelve with with shooters. The D is a massive issue. You know, they go from being the, probably the best defensive team in the comp to not very good at all. Um, but you know, considering that they did sign Westbrook, shooting became the premium that they were after, and I think they actually did pretty well to to, to get a lot of players on one-year contracts and minimum contracts, veteran minimums, all those kind of um, dollars being forked out. I think they did that, to be honest. It, do, it doesn't matter if you're conceding 120 points a game if you start scoring 130, which is probably what's going to happen. So Well, that's the hope. That is the hope, yes. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of total points overs bets on the Lakers this season, I reckon, for their games. Yeah, you're pr probably by you, because that's the only time you bet on the Lakers, right? <laughs> well, if there's easy money there, then sure. Um <laughs> Obviously, a lot of transactions and a lot of turnover, especially in the lower half of the roster. So what transaction has you most excited and you think will have the largest impact? Um, well, I mean, the hope is that the Westbrook run will have the most impact. Uh, you know, it's still still to be, to be told whether that will happen. Uh, I've heard a couple of people say that the best use of Westbrook may be for him to do what Westbrook does, but do, do it while LeBron's on the bench. And I can actually understand that. The Lakers have been pretty putrid when LeBron's gone to the bench over the last couple of years. So to have someone that can kind of carry the offensive load for a four or five minute spurts or however long it needs, um, that's actually, if they can manage that and they can stagger the minutes, that actually probably will be the way Westbrook can have the best and best impact for the Lakers. 
Um, the issue is going to be the last five minutes. You know, we can't sit Westbrook because we're paying the bags of money that you mentioned. But, you know, the, the fit with, with Westbrook, AD and LeBron, you're going to have to have two shooters out there with them. And is that going to be enough to, to space the floor? I don't know. But, you know, the Westbrook signing has to have the biggest impact if they're going to win. It's just that simple. And which one of those other guys than the shuffle guys are you most excited for? Um, Malik Monk, actually. It's a, it's a pretty easy one for me to answer. I actually really liked him coming out of college. I thought he'd be a really good pro. I thought he had a lot of offensive skill that would translate into the NBA and looked a bit lost for the first couple of years. And plus his shot wasn't going down, which is a bit of a problem when you're a shooter. You know, if you're meant to be a good shooter and you're not, that can kind of be a bit, bit of an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not ideal. Thirties, if not forty, from three-point range. I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong. He, he did start to strike the ball last year, and he's he's a pretty potent offensive weapon. And he's not going to see the best defender playing with this roster. You know, he's going to have the other guys mark him, which means he might have a couple of big nights um, under. He will just be asked to score. I mean, he can do that. Hopefully, uh, yeah. Hopefully, um, yeah. Hopefully. I'll, I'll be I'll be betting a lot of overs on Malik Monk. I reckon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Bags of, point, bags of points in there. Is it a best case scenario season is surely championship or bust, right? Uh, definitely. This this team is built to do one thing and that's win and that's win now. Anything less than the ring is going to be considered a failure. Um, that should be their ambition. It is their ambition. Um, and I would sincerely hope that we are taking home the championship at the end of the year. Otherwise, something will have gone wrong. Yeah, like I said earlier, you know, starved of success. I just like you know, I'd love to see I love to see a good underdog story finally get up. So, um, you know, I love a battler. This, you know, I'd love to see the Lakers, you know, finally make it back to the league's better when the Lakers are good. Um, well, you know, all those tropes. Oh, that's a lovely cliche. Yeah. <laughs> what What's the worst case scenario then? Um. The worst case scenario, considering the age of the roster and considering Anthony Davis's injury history, is that they're plagued by by injuries. You know, if LeBron goes down for an extended period again, uh, and a couple of other players that are out for extended periods, you know, I think they're going to struggle. And based on that, you know, that they might do what happened last year and just struggle to get in the playoffs and maybe finish like you know in that seven to eight range, um, and then have to play a good team in the plane. And you know, the worst case scenario is that someone gets hot in the plane tournament. And they're out and they don't even make what's considered now the first round. I, I could probably easily see that happening with how deep the West is. Um, and if we're not at our best, you know, one of those plucky teams um, that finish, you know, nine or 10 could probably knock us off in the playoff tournament. That's probably the worst case scenario, I think. And then, and then LeBron would uh, probably come out and say that he never liked the playing tournament. Never liked the playing tournament, didn't sign off on the Westbrook trade, doesn't know what Palenka's doing, and AD soft and throw everyone under the bus like he does and throw his toys out of the cot. But uh, he's allowed to do that because he's the best. <laughs> we haven't even talked about LeBron yet. It's a bit crazy. How, how many games do you think he'll play? Um, look, he likes playing the full season. He, he's done that kind of hero thing where he says, oh, what about that young kid in Charlotte who only gets to watch me once in his life? You know, <laughs> oh, I can't take the night off. And, you know, he loves a bit of drama. He loves a bit of theatre. He, he wants to play 82. Um, I don't think the, the franchise is in the position to tell him what to do. So I would expect him, unless he gets hurt, I would expect him to play, you know, 80 games to 82 games the full season. To be honest. I think the only thing that will prevent him from playing the full season. 
But having said that, he has been injured two of the last three seasons. You know, he's been an Ironman for a long time, but this is season 19. And God, I'm going to pull out a cliche here, but Father Time is undefeated. It is going to catch him at some point. And it kind of has to the last three seasons. He has got injured. He says it's got nothing to do with age. They were freakish injuries, but that's what happens when you get old. You get those freakish injuries do, you know, get you. So I'd expect him to play 82. Um, I want him to play 82. He wants to play 82. And I know he always listens to me. We talk quite often. Yeah, yeah. I've told, him, I've told him I want him to play 82. And he said, yeah, okay, Ryan, I will. So that's what I expect. Because he'd hate to, you know, he'd hate to disappoint you and he'd hate to be the subject of a slam piece on the Raw. <laughs> I read the Raw religiously. Big, big <laughs> Raw fan, bro. You know, he, one of those elite level frauds is right. You he know, comments all the time. <laughs> what's his handle? It's, it's like, uh, yeah, to throw us off the scent. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah, you know, is LeBron soft by an expert? Washed, washed king. Yeah, the the dunce of LA and all that, all that shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you have a next question, or are you just like filling time now? No, I'm just I'm just chatting about LeBron. I'm just trying to think Good. of all the all the narratives I can think of to to shit on him. Really, um, <laughs> you know, it is what it not is. Coming up, not coming up with much. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I'm only shitting on you, really. Yeah, fair. Um. This question, it, it's completely irrelevant to the Lakers almost because outside of like maybe a couple of guys, they're all, you know, veterans. But is there like that underrated guy that is poised for a breakout? Um, look, they got pretty big reps on Taylor Horton Tucker um, based on, on some of the things he's been able to do with the Lakers this year. Um, I'm not as big on him, to be honest. Uh, he, you know, they talk about things like wingspan and tenacity and energy but it's all that intangible shit i actually like seeing production on the court um so you know they, they said if he can sort out his jump shot and hit a you know hit a reliable three then he's going to be a pretty important player he has hit a couple of threes in preseason. I, I don't take too much notice of preseason. i don't gamble on it like some people <clears throat> but um <laughs> but you know, uh, I think he's probably the player that, I mean, this is the issue with the Lakers. No one's ever underrated on the Lakers. Everyone's always overrated. You know, you look at Kuzma over the last couple of years, no one can be underrated in playing the Lakers, but he probably comes the closest to a player that might fly a little bit under the radar and catch a few people throughout the season. I'm glad you brought up Kuzma because when I was doing the, I was speaking to the Wizards guy um, just before, and I asked him about Kuzma and I guess, wanting to see more of him. And then he, he made the point that, you know, if he wasn't playing in LA, like if he was playing in Charlotte, he wouldn't have half the reputation he's got. Um, and right. I guess it's probably the same thing with Horton Tucker. Obviously LA, not to be offensive, has the, the highest percentage of casual hype beast fans <laughs> yeah. in the entire league. So while, while THT is like, he's a good player, but he's, you know, if he was in like any other team, he'd be, a solid role player who like, oh, he, maybe he's all right, but LA, he's already like the next Kuzma, I guess. Um, right. Yeah. If, if, he, if he was in Charlotte tooling, tooling away for 82 games, averaging like eight points and three rebounds, no one would give a shit, <laughs> but he's on the line. I just, I just love that the poor guy that did the Washington Wizards preview got called the Wizards guy. Does he not have a name? If you've forgotten it already? No, no, no. I just, uh, this is about the Lakers. Isn't it? <laughs> What's his name then? <laughs> uh, ben Mehich. Okay, just making sure. Just a Am couple I going to get put the Lakers guy on the next one? Yeah, probably. <laughs> just a couple of Ben's, you know, chatting wizards. You know how it is. But no, I thought it was a really interesting point, actually, because I've 
I haven't watched much of the Lakers over the last two years or Horton Tucker. So I can't comment too much on him, but I'd never really got the sense that he was this special talent. He was drafted second round and, you know, that's that kind of defaults into the, oh, maybe he can be good one day. But then, yeah, to hear the stuff coming out of LA and LA fans and LA media as being, and it was the same with Caruso, really. Um, and Caruso was an effective player, but maybe overrated because of the market. So I'd be interested to no, see... Yeah, it's just the exposure you get. You only have to have, and I mean this quite sincerely, you only need to have 10 good games throughout the year out of the 82. But though eight of those 10 will be on TV and people will see them and think you're good and, yeah. and forget that, you know, for the other 72 games, you're shooting, you know, three for 10 or not even getting on the court sometimes, which Taylor Horton Tucker didn't do last year. So the hype on Lakers players is insane and you just get a, a, a certain boost in your reputation just by putting on the purple and gold. Yeah, and he's got to maybe show a bit more to live up to the deal he's just signed. And it's only $30 million over three years, but it's, <clears throat> I mean, he's basically being paid to be the the fifth starter or like an important bench player. So yeah. is that, a, is that a, a leap? That's a leap for him, but is it a leap that he can manage? Well, I mean, I'm sure he can be a starter in the league. I'm not necessarily doubting his talent. But again, much like Westbrook, it's a fit. And he's not a shooter. So you couldn't have, you know, if this, you couldn't have Taylor Horton Tucker, Westbrook, LeBron, AD, and then one of the centers starting. AD would have to play center in that case because you'd need another shooter out on the floor. Like you'd only have one shooter on the floor, depending on where you, where you sit on LeBron shooting these days. But, you know, he's not a shooter. He, he's, a, he's one of those athletic wingmen, which we've seen, you know, thousands of times throughout the course of the history of the league. You know, athletic and, you know, can get up and down the floor and all those type of things. But he's not a shooter and the Lakers need shooting. So you know, I don't doubt that he's a starter in terms of talent, but I don't know if he should be starting on this team. Now, obviously, a big three. You know, we love a big three. And... I think last year, if you had asked the Nets this question, you know, how many games did their big three play together? You probably would have got a bunch of varying answers based on load management and eventual injuries and all that sort of stuff. But how many games do you reckon the Lakers need big three plays together? Ooh, okay. Yeah, good question. Um, again, depending upon health, uh, Anthony Davis has been pretty hurt in his, in his career. So, you know, he's going to miss a few games there. LeBron will as well. Rusty's actually been quite durable for someone that plays at his breakneck pace, but I'll say 60, 60 games together. Do, does, do you, you and Rusty hang out often, do you? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, sitting around the barbecue, Rusty passing us a beer. Uh, I can't believe we haven't even mentioned this bloke yet, but Carmelo Anthony. What do you expect? Yeah, I don't know how many minutes. Uh, I don't know how many minutes he's going to get. I mean, he wasn't too bad for Portland, all things considered. He, everyone, well, I certainly thought he was gone and out of the league after he flamed out in, where was it, Houston? I think he only played 10 yeah. games at Houston and then didn't come back and then kind of swallowed his pride and came back off the bench for Portland. He was pretty good for them. I think he had like 40% of his threes last year, which is what you'd expect for someone at his age now is just to, to be able to hit his open threes. If he can do that for us, great. It's just the issue has always been with Melo, even in his prime, is that he can't defend a fire hydrant down the other end of the court. So, <laughs> you know, he has to hit his shots, otherwise he's completely useless. But, you know, hopefully he can do that sometimes throughout the regular season and then hopefully he's not on the court during the playoffs because teams just find him now and punish him. Yeah, I mean, for yeah, like you said, I thought he was pretty much done after Houston. He was out of the league for close to a year and then comes back basically reinvents his offense from mid-range isolations to, yeah, swallowing his pride and, yeah, hitting over 38% both years in 
Four yeah, from three, starting a fair chunk of the game, especially in that first, well, started every game in the first year, um, only a few last year. But playing uh, 24 minutes a game last year, that's obviously not going to happen this year with the Lakers. Um, but I think... He, he, if he's playing 24 minutes a game, we are in deep shit. <laughs> but it's always useful to have that kind of guy. And it's ridiculous to say this about a guy who's probably going to go into the Hall of Fame um, even without a ring. But that resume he's got. But to say, you know, a good break glass in case of emergency uh, offensive guy, when if that lineup that you talked about with no spacing just completely, you know, shits itself and is going long stretches, it's worse. To, there's worse options to have than a guy like Melo to just come on for five minutes. Yeah. 100%. That's 100% true. And the other thing that Melo can kind of speak to these younger guys is, hey, don't don't assume you're going to win a ring. I've been around for, what, 17, 18 seasons now and I haven't. And that that can be that kind of motivator. Hey, let's get, A, let's get one for Melo, but also Melo can teach these guys, don't take this for granted. Don't think you're going to compete every year. Don't think a ring is just around the corner because you can play your whole career and not get anywhere close, which he hasn't. So he can be somewhat of a leveler in, in some respects to, to make sure these guys are grounded. Don't assume just because you're playing on a team with LeBron and AD and Westbrook and the rest that we're going to win it this year. Um, don't take anything for granted. You know, compete every night and, uh, you know, play your role uh, and make sure we do all we can to win a ring this year because it's not guaranteed that you will win one in your career. It, it's strange It's strange to hear Mello portrayed as the even keel, isn't it? Um, but it's... <laughs> It's a completely legitimate point. I hadn't thought about it like that. Well, now you have. So yeah, cool. That's a, that's why I bring you on for that analysis. Um, there, there's so many options for this question, but if someone is going to win an individual award, <laughs> r- rattle through them. Yeah, Le- LeBron's been in the MVP debate since probably year two of his career. I- I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, he's been there or thereabouts. Um, probably you know a number of top five finishes and obviously a number of wins for MVPs. I think he's got so. He was right up the top last year before he got injured. He, he was in some people's favourites. Now, you can debate whether he should have been. Oh, I don't think he should have been, if I'm honest. I think that was a narrative-driven kind of favouritism. But voters like him. You know, there is a fantastic story there. It's, it's season 19. It's the Lakers. So there's a number of things that might be in his favour. If he puts up, you know, his familiar 25-7-7, and then he seems to roll out every year. So I, I dare say he'll be in the, in the discussion again. Um if he can stay healthy. I think, again, if he stays healthy, Anthony Davis is a potential defensive player of the year candidate. Um, and he'll be relied upon to do a lot of defence on this roster because there's not a lot else once you get past <laughs> a couple of players. And then I think Monk might be my dark horse for a six-man candidacy. You know, that the six-man just basically goes to whoever scores the most points. There's not a lot of nuance to the six-man award. And Monk might be able to do that. He, You know, I could see him averaging 14, 15 points at a good clip and maybe get in the six-man a year. I'm not saying he will, but that, those are probably the three that I could see. If the Lakers are to win any individual awards this year, I think those are probably three that I probably would call out and have called out. I was literally about to say um, Malik Monk for the Lou Williams Memorial Trophy of scoring the most points <laughs> off the bench. Um, yeah, Lou Williams has got a bag of those trophies, doesn't he? Yeah, Lou Williams, Jamal Crawford. You know, Monk's in that exact same mould. Like a lot of the other guys on the bench are shooters, but Monk's going to have the, the highlight plays that you know Correct. and you're right the six man of the year award it's basically they just filter by starts and then who scores the most points and ask yeah, leading leading scorer off the bench award it should be cool yeah and even if monk has a few spot starts it's still yeah he's going to have that narrative of being in la they're obviously going to be good and if it comes down to one or the other and generally the team success will help push that guy over and you'd think monk would easily have that going for him as well um 
assuming he plays like we think he's going to in LA with this cast, he's definitely going to average, you know, at least 13, 14 points a game. Just yeah. the, the efficiency might be God awful, but he's just going to jack them up. So yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> points per game is all that matters. Yeah. Percentages are for nerds. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, Smith. <laughs> um, before I go on to the last bit, is Space Jam going to hurt LeBron's legacy? <laughs> I haven't seen it. Is it bad? I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's bad. I've, I've been told yeah. not to... I was going to go watch it at the cinemas physically and then someone said, don't spend your money on it. So, No, I, I don't think it'll have any impact on his legacy, to be honest. But, you know... Nah, that, was, no, that was a piss take. <laughs> I'm um, not sure. <laughs> uh, the wins line is set at 52 and a half for the Lakers. Are you over or under? 52 and a half, 50. I'll go over on that. I think they'll actually be pretty good in the regular season. Uh, you know, I mean, everyone says that they've got a really old team, but there's a lot of them. They can probably cover a couple of injuries here and there. So they're pretty deep. Uh, and, and, you know, if they do stagger the minutes so Westbrook can have some of those non-LeBron minutes and just do what Rusty does, I think they'll actually be a pretty good regular season team. I think it's it's really how it all performs in, in the playoffs that really matters and, and what the, where the question marks are. So, I think they'd probably get 52 relatively easy. I'd, I'd, I'd probably have them over 55, to be honest. Yeah, and last year they uh, won 42 games. So over a full season, that's 47 wins, 48 wins. But last year was kind of Murphy's Law. They had a bunch of injuries to their their key guys, like AD missed a big chunk, and then their bench probably wasn't hot shit at all. And a lot of guys were just earning minutes without actually contributing and LeBron, LeBron missed a fair chunk too after, after the All Star game. So you know that to still get forty seven shows, they're pretty on a pretty good rate before that, uh, and they kind yeah. of stumbled into the playoffs. What they finished seventh, I think. So, seventh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely think fifty two is probably a touch low if they stay healthy. Yeah. So forty seven win pace last year. I guess the only thing that's really going to stop them this year is load management. You would have thought, yeah, outside of injuries, it's if they decide that LeBron takes a week off and. Yeah, AD will miss time. It's just inevitable. So, <laughs> yeah, you can mark that in. Just not if it's when AD will actually need some time out to, you know, sore tailbone or and fractured bruise or some crap. Like <laughs> fractured. Yeah, fractured Instagram account. Um, <laughs> and finally, I'm not even going to ask you for a safe or mild prediction because I know you. You're going to give me a bold prediction for the Lakers. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've actually already kind of mentioned it, but I, my bold prediction is that they once again have a few injuries and just scramble into in the scramble, just struggle into the the playoffs at, at seventh, and then actually lose in the play-in tournament. That that would be my bold prediction, and you know there'll be a lot of hand wringing at the end of the season, but I, I can actually legitimately see that happening. It, that a, a team just gets hot over a two-game kind of series or course, uh, and that's enough to knock them out. Uh, and they know, and technically that means they don't even make the playoffs. So that would be my bold, bold prediction: is the Lakers don't make the playoffs because they finish seventh but lose a play-in. Are you trying to make the Lakers seem likable by missing the playoffs? <laughs> I don't think that would work. That is an absolute mission impossible. But I, I could, you know, that, that is my bold prediction because my safe prediction is they make the playoffs. My mild one is that they they win. Yeah. The so you know, I'm not left with much else. So yeah. my bold one is that they that they don't even make the playoffs. Courtesy of losing them playing. Yeah, bold prediction would be like, you know, saying uh, like the the Bulls are going to make the top four home court and then win. Whereas a bold prediction for the yeah, Lakers, oh, they're going to win the title. Oh, they've got LeBron. That's pushing the boat out there, mate. Oh, yeah. Good one. <laughs> Not that bold. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's only got, what, four rings? So 
Yeah. Uh, have you got anything to promote before we let you go? No, not at all. Nothing. <laughs> just, you um, just a, a good follow on Twitter for anyone is Hindo Hoops. It's just, uh, it's just a fantastic Twitter account. You should follow that. Bags of potential, that guy. I think he'll be a, a really, really famous Twitter influencer in the years to come. So if you haven't jumped on yet, jump on board. <laughs> He's going to love that now that you've said that. <laughs> All right, if that's all you've got for us, then I guess we'll let you go. Appreciate you coming on. Cheers, Ben. Crowd are looking, throws it. Ali, oh! Aiden puts it down! He puts it down! All right, joining us now on Beyond the Fences NBA season previews, we've brought back our resident Phoenix Suns expert to run us through the new season from the four-point play. Dave, how are you? Doing good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, Obviously, last time we spoke... Maybe happier circumstances or more nerve-wracking circumstances. I don't know how you describe it, but yeah, a bit going on the last few months. It was a bit of a wild ride and I uh, I wasn't really experienced for it, to be honest. Obviously, making the playoffs for the first time in, in 10 years and making it all the way to the finals was a a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, fell a little bit short, unfortunately, but it's hard to uh, get too upset at uh, going that far in our first uh, you know, playoffs appearance in, in over a decade. So uh, yeah. yeah, pretty stoked with the season and uh, yeah, tried to just look back on it with, um, you know, good feelings rather than uh, being too upset that we, we couldn't quite go all the way. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, obviously my opinion as a Pistons fan means nothing for success because I've known it's like, but I don't <laughs> think there's any shame. Yeah. Losing to that Giannis performance it's it's just one of those things where it you know shit, shit happens you run into a buzzsaw um and I, th- I think phoenix have a really good account of themselves as well it's just yeah sometimes it doesn't break your way exactly exactly and yeah if you've got to pick uh one guy to kind of take over and lose to uh seeing Giannis do what he did uh first ever championship um yeah dominant 50 point performance that there was not a hell of a lot we could do there for a couple of games so um, yeah, I was I was pretty pretty stoked for him once I put the the Suns feelings aside to uh, see <laughs> yeah. him get his his first title. So yeah, that was good to see. Yeah, I think an easier pill to swallow than if you had lost to you know Durant and Harden going off. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I guess on a general level, how are you feeling going into this season? Yeah, feel pretty good. Obviously, a little bit nerve wracking. I uh, don't know what this feeling is like where it feels like we haven't really had an off season at all. You know, generally I'm used to uh, being out, you know, in the, in the normal ski- season schedule, you know, early April and having to wait all the time till October to, to see Suns basketball <laughs> again. So uh, going all the way into, I think it was July off the top of my head, uh, the finals ended up finishing in this season and then obviously getting back on the normal uh, yearly calendar now for the NBA. We've we've come around super super quick. Um, yeah, basketball going that long obviously got got me through a lot of lockdowns here in mm-hmm. Melbourne and stuff. So uh, yeah. yeah, I was happy to have it around. But yeah, don't feel like we've had much of a break. Which I guess uh, when you fall at that final hurdle, you uh, you kind of want to get back to it. And we've got a pretty young squad outside of a, a couple of the experienced guys at the other end of the the spectrum so uh yeah we should be good to to go around again yeah uh 21st of july was game six and like you said yeah obviously not having an off season or much of an off season for me it's the opposite obviously detroit wasn't invited to the bubble so we had about nine months off between those (laughs) and then obviously finishing last this season so we've had a lot of time off recently um 
but I'm not here to to be depressed about my terrible team. <laughs> I guess on, on the Suns going into this season, is there, and we spoke about this a little bit off air before we started, but what's the one, I guess, swirling dominant storyline that's surrounding the team so far? Yeah, it's clearly the extensions. You know, we've got a lot of continuity. Uh, I think 11 of the finals roster is coming back. Uh, same starting five, pretty much the same bench with a couple of new additions, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. So uh, if anything is not going to go right to start the season or to or potentially derail uh, the start of this season, it's these extensions that are uh, looming over uh, DeAndre Ayton, uh, Mikhail Bridges, uh, and to a very much lesser extent, Landry Shamet, who's a, a new signing, uh, is also from that draft class and therefore eligible for an extension. But I think we can put him to the side for one second and uh, focus on on Aiton and Bridges, uh, both of which haven't reached agreement yet and and may not. You know, we're getting pretty close to the start of the season. Maybe by the time people listen to this, one or two of them. Uh, will have been announced. But uh, yeah, I would have expected Aiton would have been done by now. Bridges, uh, I'm not as surprised. Sometimes these things need the deadline of the start of the season to really uh, get the negotiations going and, and you know, fall across the line. But uh, a little bit of a surprise that we've uh, still got both of them uh, not unsigned, I guess, because you've still got restricted free agency at the end of this season, um, but you know, not extended uh, for their four and five years uh, going forward. Yeah, and I'm going to break my golden rule for these previews and in uh, not dating anything, but we're recording this on October 15th. <laughs> and I think I remember asking you to do this Suns preview a few weeks ago now, and you you know said, "Oh, just wait for the extensions to happen." You know, pretty confident they're going to happen soon. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit nervy now. Um, you know, it, I, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world if they don't extend either of them because you do have that restricted free agency and matching rights. But um, you know, I think if we're tapping into the the Suns fan base here, and I like to think that I've got a pretty good handle on how things are going uh, online within the Suns fan base. As I said at the start, I think. We're, we're pumped, ready to go and kind of run it back is the the mentality of the fan base here. And it just feels like getting these extensions done would go a long way to, particularly for DeAndre Ayton, kind of um, solidifying his role. Uh, you know, he sacrificed a lot as a number one pick, you know, cleaning up the boards, playing defense, not, a getting, not getting a heck of a lot of touches uh, on the offensive end when we've got Chris Paul and, and Devin Booker running the show. So, you know, most fans, I think, even though they understand that he's probably not quite at the point where he deserves uh, the full max extension, uh, they just want our owner to pay it and have that reward for DeAndre Ayton last season and just not have it hanging over because as you probably know when rookies are are coming up to that second contract if they uh, don't have the extension that's when they start uh, potentially sulking for touches um, you know wanting to do things differently wanting to expand their game a little bit and you know not to suggest that that's exactly what DeAndre Ayton would do because he's a pretty selfless guy from what we've seen in, in the three years so far. Uh, but he's got a very clear role on this team uh, as it's currently constructed. And and you just want him kind of uh, leaning further into that like he did last year. Yeah, I think about year four is when, you know, things start agitating um, or like you said, sulking, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't be worried as a Phoenix fan of either of these two guys. It's a lot easier to convince um, guys to extend 
after you've literally just run to the uh, to the finals. So exactly, if, yeah. If this was Orlando um, trying to convince them, I'd be a little bit more <laughs> worried that it could get into holdouts or even God forbid qualifying off a season. But I, I wouldn't be too stressed at this stage anyway for the Suns. Um, you mentioned earlier that obviously a lot of the team is the same, so there probably won't be much for this point. But um, addition or loss, is there a transaction you think will have the largest impact on the team? Yeah, I think just on the back of preseason here, I mentioned his name before. The the one that most fans seem to be the most excited about uh, is Landry Shamet coming over from uh, the Brooklyn Nets. We traded uh, another fan favorite, Javon Carter, out uh, with our first round pick and and got Shamet back uh, in the off season. And he's looking like the key, I guess, addition off the bench uh, for this team. Particularly, I guess you know not bringing up old wounds too much. But if we go back to those finals games against the Bucks, where they really <laughs> stifled Devin Booker uh, and Chris Paul, I think a, a lot of fans recognized that we just needed another deep threat, uh, particularly like a movement shooter who could uh, bend the defense a little bit and make life easier a little bit for Chris Paul and Devin Booker on the ball. We got a little bit too static at the end there. We run a very kind of predictable offense that, is very deadly and, and hard to defend. But when you get into that really pointy end uh, and you're playing the same team night in, night out, they just kind of worked us out a little bit too much. So uh, bringing in another a movement shooter, as I said, and a guy who can do a little bit off the bounce as well, um, I think is going to be what most fans are excited about as far as new additions go. Uh, just looking at it here in, in the preseason, he shot 45% from three on, on four and a half attempts, which is you know exactly what you're looking for. Uh, when you trade in a guy like Landry Shamet. So, yeah, I think he's going to be a, another key piece off the bench. And, and the Suns bench overall is just looking like it's going to be really deadly uh, and just blow teams out. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the first 10 or 15 games here, given we're one of the teams with the most continuity, whether there's some some really bad blowouts like we've seen in, in the preseason so far. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I totally forgot Shamit was on the Suns. And it's I've had a look, he's a new team every year. He's such an odd player that he's bound he he seems like he's probably too good to have bounced around, but not good enough to have locked in a spot, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's an odd yeah. one. It is, it is. And and Monty Williams uh commented uh after they acquired him that they'd been trying to get him for a couple of years. And and one trend since Monty's been our coach is is a lot of existing relationships that Monty has had around the league uh, have resulted in guys coming in guys like Dario Saric um, mm-hmm. even campaign was a, a Monty from OKC Thunder when he was an assistant there so he yep. backed him coming back in and that really worked out and as you said Shamit's bounced around uh, Philly uh, the Clippers and the Nets and, and Monty had some familiarity with him uh, in his rookie season in Philadelphia. So uh, yeah, hoping that Monty sees a little bit more in him from that rookie season than uh, yeah, he was able to kind of showcase on, on the clips uh, and then the nets as well. I've got to ask you about this player, uh, JaVale McGee. What are your hopes, expectations, fears for someone like him joining the team? <laughs> I love JaVale. You know, that Watching the preseason games, you know, you can't go more than five minutes of JaVale without someone mentioning, you know, the the turnaround in his career as an Olympic gold medalist when, you know, five years ago, everyone just thought him of that guy that was always on Shacked and a Fool. That seems to, <laughs> to follow him pretty much everywhere he goes. But to be honest, he's done a pretty good job the last few years of, of making that a distant memory now. And, um, you know, I think 
what the Suns are looking to do is uh, the last couple of years, they've gone with a bench big uh, behind DeAndre Ayton that brings uh, something different. You know, a couple of years ago, another Aussie, uh, Aaron Baines, was was the big off the bench. Uh, and then last year, it was Dario Saric, as I said, playing uh, the reserve big role for the Suns, kind of looking to stretch the floor, you know, um, get a bit more passing than DeAndre currently brings to the starting five. But this year, it looks like they're just leaning further into, you know, what DeAndre does uh, for the first, you know, 12 minutes of the game and and they can bring McGee off the bench and and just run the same offense, uh, you know, run rim to rim, defend the rim uh, and finish everything. I was laughing earlier today. I think in the four games of the preseason, he's shooting 73% and above 80% in the restricted area. He's just finishing absolutely everything. So I think Currently, the Suns are, are very much enjoying the JaVale M- McGee experience. So uh, long may it continue, I think. <laughs> yeah, I've always been a, usually not for basketball reasons, but I've always been a big fan of JaVale's um, persona and his <laughs> entertainment value. Yeah. Um, I think there's a pretty obvious answer for this one, but what does a best case scenario look like for the Suns? Yeah, get back to those finals and, and hopefully go one better, I think. I think it's going to be pretty tough to to repeat you know lots of people have have made mention of the fact that you know a lot of things broke the right way last season for phoenix to to get to the finals and i don't think anyone shies away from that the team themselves don't even shy away from that but i think if you look at the west again this year it, it could very much break the same way you've got you know Kawhi maybe will come back maybe won't uh, the Lakers are running a you know very very old roster that could fall apart at, at any given time. Uh, the Denver Nuggets have got Jamal Murray coming back maybe towards the end of the season. I think Utah will be up there again, uh, and then there's I guess the unknowns of you know the, what the Golden State Warriors might do and, and Dallas and, and a few other teams. So I would very much expect, particular regular season wise, uh, with that continuity that I mentioned, that the Suns should be pushing. Uh, for a top, you know, one, two seed again. And then it just comes down to, you know, playoffs. Hopefully it breaks right again, but you can get the wrong matchup in the first or second round and all of a sudden you're going home. So, uh, yeah, I think hopefully, I guess they learn a little bit from last season and keep that top, you know, seed to get home court in as many series as possible. But um, I think we probably went a little bit too hard in the regular season last year and we saw guys like Chris Paul and stuff uh, fall apart towards the end in the playoffs uh, health-wise and, and even Devin Booker had some health complaints as well. So uh, I'd, I'd like to see them experiment a little bit more in the regular season, maybe uh, drop a drop a win here or there uh, for the better of the, the whole team uh, when it comes to the playoffs because you know, I've got no doubt that we'll definitely be there at the pointy end of the season. Yeah, and I think like you said, aiming for a one-two seed. Um, you look at a lot of the other teams that'll probably be in that upper echelon. I think LA, uh, the Lakers specifically, sorry, probably going to coast a few regular season games just by virtue of the makeup of their roster with yep. the older guys load managing. Um, Portland is always an unknown. I think Dallas, you know, what's the, what's Jason Kidd going to do? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it'll, it'll be great, but you know, Luke is always good enough to drag a team up. And then Utah, I think it'll probably be pretty safe up there. Clippers, I'm not sure with their injuries and I guess what's going on with Kawhi and Paul George. So there's definitely avenues for the Suns. Like a best case scenario is obviously things breaking right. And I think last season probably was pretty close to a best case scenario anyway. 
Yeah. So, so it's really just more of the same. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. If they can, uh, yeah, take that pressure now, there's always that thing of, you know, we're, we're probably a little bit more the hunted now uh, than the hunters. So, you know, people will be coming for the Suns uh, every other night now, whereas last season we probably picked up a few regular season wins when teams weren't really expecting us to be as as good as what we were. So that'll be interesting to start the season, see how they go. Uh, and yeah, I think luck-wise, uh, we had a, a fair bit of luck injury-wise and stuff last year, both for the health of our roster and then the health of some of the teams we were coming up against at the end there. So, yeah. you know, I expect that, you know, the way the world is that maybe that kind of regresses a little bit this year. Maybe we get hit with uh, a couple of our own injuries during the season, which might throw things out a little bit too. I think we have to be wary of. Yeah. I guess my only worry for the side, we can even do this in the worst case scenario that's coming up, but I guess um, for the Suns, it's always going to be interesting for a team like that, how they handle the expectations and getting a team's best every night, which they probably, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, they, they wouldn't have got last year, but yeah. What is a worst case scenario? Uh, yeah. I try not to think about it too much to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, but I think that there is a heavy reliance uh, at the top there on, on Devin Booker and Chris Paul running the offense. I think we've got great complementary pieces uh, and James Jones has built a really great roster that kind of complements how we play with the two of those guys as the the head of the snake, like I like to call uh, Booker and Paul. So I think worst case scenario would be that one of those guys misses a fairly extended period of time. And and God forbid um, that they don't both miss at the same time, because, you know, I think for short stints, one or two games here, you know, campaign can fill in, you know, um, notoriously, you know, filled in very well uh, in the Western Conference Finals against the Clippers when Chris Paul was out with COVID and had, you know, basically a career game yeah. uh, with uh, 20-odd points, nine assists and, and no turnovers, I think, in that game. So he can do it. Uh, I don't know if he'd be able to do it for long stretches of the season. And then, uh, yeah, I guess on the other side, I guess Shamit could spot start for Devin Booker here or there, but again, over long stretches, uh, we might struggle, you know, start to struggle a little bit. And guys like Aiton, Crowder, Mikael Bridges all have to kind of step up their game that they're not really uh, accustomed to right now. So, yeah, without thinking about it too much, I would say, yeah, worst case scenario is uh, that those injuries do come back around this season where we were lucky last season. Uh, and in particular, hit the the real wrong guys that we don't, um, you know, have great replacements for. Yeah. Um, is there, excuse me, let me try that again. Is there a guy on the team that maybe is, and I don't like the word underrated because people become so underrated, they become overrated, but you know, (laughs) a younger guy or an underrated guy that maybe we're not talking about that you think is primed for a breakout or you're hoping for a breakout this year? Yeah. I think the, the obvious answer is Mikael Bridges, but I think most of the NBA watching world is, is very much, uh, learning that Mikael Bridges is very, very good. And I think this year uh, that'll just solidify that. So I think that's that's probably an obvious one. He's definitely due to have another leap, uh, particularly offensively. But if I was to pick a more under the radar guy, it's probably Cam Johnson, to be honest. I think he's probably the one guy that has the potential to break in to the starting five and, and pinch Jay Crowder's starting spot at power forward. Um, and just, I was really, really impressed with, uh, his playoffs last year, 
I was, I felt like every other game I was kind of crying out for him to get more minutes rather than less. I'm just looking at it here. He played 21.1 minutes over 21 games in the playoffs when you're winning every other game and, and make it to the finals, you, you can't complain too much about the, the head coach's decisions. But I thought, you know, looking at it here, he shot 50% from the field, 44.6% from three and, and 90.6 from the free throw line. So basically out of 50, 40, 90 playoffs over 21 games coming off as the, the kind of key piece off the bench. And I think the other four spots in that starting five are, are very much, solidified there's absolutely no way that anyone uh by form at least maybe by injury but not by form are, are leaving their spots uh in that starting five but i do think that cam johnson could supplant jay crowder at some point of the season and it would purely be to uh get more shooting uh on the floor get more athleticism on the floor he can put the ball on the floor a little bit better than jay crowder uh, i'm sure people listening um, may or may not remember his huge poster dunk uh, on PJ Tucker in the finals <laughs> uh, that, that that came from absolutely nowhere. Unfortunately, we lost that game, so it won't be as much of a, mem- a memory for, for Suns fans. But that he's got that sneaky athleticism that can can uh, yeah sneak up on you, and I think you know obviously as a shooter um, can do it all behind the arc. So yeah, he's the one that I'm watching for to to take another leap this season. Yeah, see, it's funny you said that Cam was the under-the-radar one because I think Cam would have been my answer for that if you just asked Mm me um, as a neutral observer. But another guy I've had a look at, I've just got the roster open in front of me. What are your expectations for um, Jalen Smith this year? Obviously, a lottery pick last year. Uh, Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Jalen. Well, I, I, I should clarify that. From the moment that the Suns drafted Jalen Smith, I thought that he was a five. Uh, and I still think that he's a five and the Suns seem very, very obsessed with uh, turning him into more of a power forward. Uh, everything they've done uh, in summer league, uh, when he plays in the preseason this year, uh, when he was playing in, in garbage time last year, uh, coming off the bench in, in blowouts, they mainly put him out there as a four. They seem very uh, into the idea of, I guess, having, you know, twin towers with, with DeAndre Ayton and, and Jalen Smith and, and Jalen can, you know, shoot the ball a little bit better than th- from three than, than Ayton can. And I guess, you know, the argument is when you run up against, you know, that Lakers big lineup uh, or like we did with uh, Lopez and Giannis in the finals that you've got kind of two big guys. Uh, the, the problem is he just, he even said it the other day when he had a really good game in preseason, mainly playing at the five that, He's just so much more comfortable right now at the five than he is at the four. Um, so, you know, when I think about him this season, you've got Aiton, you've got JaVale McGee, uh, you've got Frank Kaminsky, and then you've got Dario Saric, who's coming back from a, a torn ACL. The, the kind of center minutes outside of injury are probably already eaten up. Uh, maybe he can come in. Uh, at backup four every now and then when we are playing a, a big lineup, but I just haven't seen much from him that that gets me excited about that right now uh, as a four. I very much see him more as a a backup five longer term. Which uh, yeah, there's just not a spot for him on a on a you know contending team right now. Yeah, I think uh, if I remember correctly, at least personally, last year when there's usually one or two guys in the lottery that get drafted that it's kind of the Bill Simmons woe moment. Like, um, <laughs> I, I forget now who it was that it was, it might've been Papianas for the Kings that elicited that. I, I don't remember anymore, but 
the point is, yeah, Jalen Smith was probably that guy for me last year, and this year it was Josh Giddy, but for different reasons. Um, yep. So, yeah, I guess, and I just looked at his numbers there as you were talking. Um, yeah, obviously not a, an avid Suns watcher, but, yeah, thought he got on the court a little bit more than what he did. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah I guess it's interesting to see how much usage he gets, and I'd imagine, yeah, not a lot. Um, is there a player on the Suns that you think – uh, is going to win one of those individual awards? And if so, uh, who and uh, what award? Well, it's a good question. I think that, you know, everything breaking right, we could be, you know, we could have someone that could win just about any of them, to be honest. You know, I think um, if you go through it, MVP, obviously, you know, Booker and Chris Paul, very outside chances, defensive player of the year, you know, all going right. Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton could be in for that. Um, six man of the year. I think we're going to have a really good bench, as I said before. So whether it's campaign, Cam Johnson, Landry Shamit, they all could uh, pop off the bench and, and be in the running for one of those spots. But as you know, you hear me running through those names, they're all kind of outside chances for all of those awards, I think. So you could argue that we have a chance at, at winning one of them, but I don't think any of them stands out. Yeah. Uh, quite, you know, more than the other. The one that I'd probably be looking out for uh, specifically it, it is Devin Booker. Um, you know, he's got two All-Stars to this point, but both as uh, injury reserves. So I think this is definitely the year where, you know, he gets the All-Star nod off his own back after going to the finals, you know, scored a couple of 40-point games in the finals, just had a ridiculous playoffs, first ever playoffs for him by the way. So I think, you know, finally he's etched in the memory of all the people that vote, vote on that. So I think he'll get that outright. And then, you know, I guess it's a little bit more of an obscure one, but I think he's going to have a real crack at, at all NBA this year, you know, probably third or, or maybe even second team. I think in the off season, he was voted by the GMs as the, the second best shooting guard um, behind James Harden. So uh, with that in mind, uh, another good season here. I think that that's probably the most likely one, even though it's, you know, not one of the, you know, trophy holding up yep. in the air type, type individual awards. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And um, I guess when I look at it, uh, you're right. I think book is an outside MVP chance um, with those other awards, like sixth man or most improved, they're real numbers awards. Um, mm-hmm. And six man, it's who scores the most off the bench uh, and most improved <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, who, has the biggest role increase and gets that correlated with numbers. He saw it, um, you know, Julius Randall had a, a ridiculous season last year and Jeremy Grant, yeah. Michael Porter Jr. were kind of in that conversation as well. But I do think, um, like you've mentioned earlier, with his role maybe being increased, um, it might be ruined actually if he plays too well and goes into the starting lineup, but Cam Johnson could be an outsider for that most improved as well. Yeah, most improved I could definitely see. Um, as you said, if, if things go as I um, alluded to before and he does get in the, in the starting lineup, particularly early in the year, you could see one of those, you know, big points per game jumps, which is generally, yeah. You know, what stands out for a most improved award. So looking at it here, he was 9.6 points per game. So, you know, if he gets into the starting lineup and all of a sudden he's at, you know, 15, 16 points a game, and kind of as one of the top three or four options on the sun starting, then yeah, he could be in the conversation for most improved for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, tough competition when you, you talk about, you know, a guy like Julius Randall last year, turning himself into, you know, an all NBA player. I don't think we're quite at that point with, with Cam Johnson yet. So 
I think they robbed themselves of these things a little bit as a team, just being yeah, yeah. so so balanced. And and there there won't be that one guy off the bench who scores you know eighteen points per game because it's just not really the way that the Suns play outside of. Uh, Devin Booker basically getting his shots. Everyone else kind of has a an equal opportunity offense kind of running through with with Monty Williams. Yeah, it's kind of like I think yeah with the Nets as an example. You know they steal votes off each other. Um, like any good team, it's going to be harder to win one of those individual awards because they just don't have the numbers that yep. the casual voters or the specific media markets uh, look at. Um, finally, I ask everyone their opinion on their their wins line uh, and the Suns, according to the list I've got in front of me, and I just clicked off it, uh, listed at 51 and a half. Are you over or under on that total? Yeah, I'd be punching the over on that. I'm not really a betting man, but uh, you know, I, I do pay attention to the over-unders uh, and I've paid attention to a fair bit of discussion about the the good over-unders and, and the bad ones. You know, Outside of what we spoke about before, knock on wood with injuries, um, I think the Suns, with how much continuity they have, pretty much their whole, you know, uh, eight, nine man roster coming back uh, second season with Chris Paul at the helm, unless one of those big guys uh, miss a, a fair chunk of the season, uh, I'd be really shocked if we win 50 games or less uh, this year, given that I think, I know it was a shortened season last season, but I think our pace was around 54 off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think, yeah, you can pretty much expect that again from the Suns. Um, I guess that's why over-unders are hard because, you know, what you, what did you say it was set at 51? So really yeah, all it takes is, yeah. is Chris Paul or, or Devin Booker missing some time and then maybe that gets a little bit dodgy. But um, yeah, I, I'd be backing the over on that for sure. So I, I agree with you without even looking at the um, calculation. The pace was actually 58 <laughs> last year. <laughs> there you go. Even better. Uh, and I guess finally, uh, I don't know what your Nando's level of spice is, but a prediction for the season, bold, safe, mild, you know, lemon and herb, whatever you want to give me. <laughs> I, I tend to stay away from the lemon and herb, although maybe my, my basketball takes are probably more of the, the lemon lemon and herb variety. But um, yeah, I mean, it's not really bold or spicy to to say the Suns will go back to the finals given what they did. Yeah, uh, last year. So um, it, maybe it is a bit too lemon and herb to, to go down that <laughs> route. But I, honestly, I think I think the Suns themselves and and the fan base overall has a little bit of a chip on their shoulder this year because I think uh, whether it's fairly or unfairly, we are viewed very much as a team that had everything kind of fall right for it last year and proved a lot of preseason uh, predictions incorrect. And I think a lot of people are, are kind of waiting with bated breath to see whether it was just a, you know, a one-off or whether they can do it again. And I'm really confident uh, that they will be able to do it again. So yeah, not too spicy, but I do think we'll be back there um, probably fighting it out in the Western conference finals. But as I said, by that time, who knows what's happened. So I can't really get uh, too much more specific other than that. Yeah. I I think a bold prediction for the Suns would be that they end up, like in the play-in spot, that'd be really, <laughs> that'd be a really bold yeah. one, I think. Yeah, I, I'm not expecting that. Things would have to go. They're they're very deep, so I think that they'd even uh, avoid the play-in uh, with one of those you know major injuries 
uh, to one of those key guys that I was talking about because it's just it's a super deep. It's it's so strange to even say it given you know where we've come from, and that's why you know the likes of you as a Detroit fan should should have a little bit of hope because uh, <laughs> it it can turn around very very quickly. Where you know the Suns are a living proof of that, but. Uh, yeah, just a completely different team than what we've put out in the last 10 years. And I think they can pretty much write any any kind of ship uh, outside of, you know, something really, really dramatic this season. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be there at the pointy end for sure. Yeah, last year's finals between two quote-unquote small markets was a nice change of pace from Lakers-Miami <laughs> a couple of years exactly. ago. Yeah. Um, have you got anything to promote before we get out of here? Oh, not really, mate. I'd do a newsletter. It would only be very interesting to, to Suns fans because it's very, very uh, Suns heavy. But if there are any Suns fans listening that uh, haven't come across me on Twitter, um, uh, at the four-point play, the IV Roman numeral point play, and uh, you can find my Substack newsletter, which is also called uh, the four-point play there, uh, just when I can write very uh, deep, I guess, dive analysis on the Suns. Uh, known for you know lots of gifts, lots of words. Uh, probably take it to half a day to to get through it all because I, <laughs> I don't get to write very often. So when I do, there's there's a lot there to digest. <laughs> Too easy, mate. Well, other than that, yeah, we appreciate you coming on and best of luck for the season. Thanks very much. So looking, looking, looking. Bogdanovich, three seconds. Bogey for the win. Right, welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Fences NBA Season Previews. And today we're covering the Sacramento Kings and joining us from the Kings Herald, Tony Zipteris. How are you? Ben, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No worries, man. Um, excited for the season? Yeah. And you know what? Uh, you know, as an NBA uh, follower, it's not easy to be excited about a season as a Sacramento Kings uh, writer <laughs> fan all the time. Uh, I really isn't. It hasn't been for a while, but I got to say, and I know we're going to get into it, but there is some optimism in the air. Um, so I would say, you know, I- I'm excited. I'm not expecting them to be, you know, amazing, but, but on the Kings scale, I would say there is more optimism than usual in Sacramento right now. Yeah. I think following the NBA, at least, you know, on a general level for the last 10, 12 years or so, but then more closely online in the last seven or eight years, uh, the Kings, fairly or otherwise have always been kind of the you know fun to laugh at um yeah but, but very entertaining for, for a multitude of reasons but i think over the last couple of years it's actually been entertaining for the product on the court which is a nice change of pace and you know, got some really fun guys like darren fox and buddy healed that make it really easy to root for big team and look i don't hate the king i like the kings i want them to do well um that playoff streak it's got to end at some point um so i guess with all that considered what is the main storyline surrounding the team going into this season? I would say it's all, uh, as you referred to, it's all about breaking that that playoff streak, that 15-year playoff drought. Um, and the Kings have talked about playoffs in the past uh, when the fan base knew that those are unrealistic expectations. They were just <laughs> saying things to kind of keep us quiet. Um, and they're work? saying it again this year. No, it didn't work. <laughs> In fact, I mean, it, that was 
we've had, I think it's uh, 10 coaches in 15 years. So no, it did not work. We're, <laughs> we're constantly cycling through different executives, front office, even ownership. We had an ownership change midway through the drought. So we've been through it all. Um, but this year is a, it's a little bit, a little bit different. I would say it's a little bit different. Yeah. And I, I guess even if a, a play in, would that count as breaking the playoff streak or is it, you know, top eight, like get through that seeding game if you have to. Well, this is, so this is the, the internal debate of a Kings fan of a, of a Sacramento NBA fan is if that play in counts as a, a playoff breaking, uh, I don't know, accomplishment. I, I lean on no. And I think most people also lean on no. Now that being said, if they make the play in as a 10 seed, which is kind of where a lot of that, that should tell you something or all you need to know about Kings fans and, and the vibe in Sacramento in general, we're viewing like the 10 seed as a, uh, a pretty big accomplishment here. Um, not, a, not, you know, we wouldn't consider that breaking the playoff drought, but if you make the play in, you only got to win two games to make the actual playoff. So even if they end the season as a 10 seed and get in the playoffs that way, that would count um, yep. to me. You know, they don't need to get top eight. They can get top 10, then hopefully win their playoffs, uh, their play in series and finally break the drought in that, in that regard. But that's the, that's the storyline. Um, can they break the drought? And the Kings have a lot riding on. If they do or they don't, this would probably be Luke Walton's last year in Sacramento if they don't break the, the playoff drought. Monty McNair, their general manager, kind of hitched his wagon to Luke Walton, kind of a controversial decision around here. <laughs> um, Luke Walton, uh, by all accounts, Monty McNair had the option to get rid of Luke Walton if he wanted to and bring in his own head coach. And instead, Monty McNair said at the end of last season that he thought Luke Walton was going to be the head coach to bring this team back into the playoffs. So they've sort of put all of their chips on the table, which is why it is exciting as a Kings fan, because we know one way or the other, either they make the playoffs <laughs> or big changes are coming. So either way, it's going to be a fun season and then off season with either the improvements they make to go further or the teardown they do to reset again. And what's your, I guess, what's your opinion and the fan base's opinion on Luke Walton then? Like, do you, are you hoping, uh, however, cynically for a teardown? Oh boy. That's a deep question, man. If you pulled the fan base, I would, I bet it's split. Uh, I'm not a big Luke Walton guy simply because they've been uh, somewhat disappointing under him. He's not, he's a, he's a player's coach and the Kings went from Dave Yeager, who is uh, a lot of the players didn't like him. He didn't have a lot of support in the locker room. He was a more of a Tom Thibodeau type going to yell at guys where Luke Walton has been such a, a polar opposite from Dave Yeager, where he almost lets the players walk all over him too much. That's what that's what some people would say. I kind of subscribe to that theory as well. I think a good example of that is Buddy Heald. He's never been able to rein in Buddy Heald. So Buddy Heald just takes whatever shots he wants and doesn't play very good defense. And Luke Walton all last season, despite the fact that their rookie Tyrese Halliburton was outplaying Buddy Heald, was so hesitant to make that switch and put in the guy who deserved it, who was playing better, the future Tyrese Halliburton, he would not make that switch and move Buddy Hill to the bench, mostly because he was afraid to ruffle feathers because Buddy Hill loves starting. That's a, that's a thing with Buddy. Um, so that's sort of the Luke Walton vibe. It's like, you know, if he's not here, I think a lot of people will be happy, but I don't think that overshadows the excitement of them making the playoffs. So it is very split. Um, but that's why I call it an exciting season because one way or the other, I think a, a large 
section of Kings fans will be kind of happy. They'd be <laughs> happy if Luke Walton is gone, if they fail. And they'd even be, they'd be even more happy though, of course, if they made the playoffs. So yep. again, one way or the other, we're, we're going somewhere here. <laughs> um, and, and just lastly, I don't want to dwell too much on storylines, but uh, on Buddy Heald, obviously there was a lot of rumors swirling around him in the off season. Maybe Philly were going to trade for him. Do you, I guess we'll, I'll jump ahead on my little run sheet here, but do you think he finishes the season in Sacramento? Uh, another tough one. I would lean no simply because they've tried to trade him many times already. Uh, they actually, I mean, the Kings said it without saying it. They thought he was going to the Lakers a couple months ago for Montrez Harrell and Kyle Kuzma and uh, a first round pick. Maybe, maybe yeah. not. Sorry, Basically Lakers, the Russell Westbrook sixes. trade. Yeah. 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 Um, they had, I mean, the, from their perspective, that was done. Um, so they've already tried to trade him. <laughs> He's here still. My gut says if the Kings do make any move, it's going to be Buddy Heald because he has the big matching salary they can use to go get someone like Ben Simmons, which is a big hope. Probably a pipe dream at this point. But if they're going to match any big contract and make any you know major splash trade, it's going to be Buddy Heald going out. That's a, that's a pretty much a guarantee. And referencing what I talked about earlier with Tyrese Halliburton, all preseason, Luke Walton has finally made that switch and used Buddy Heald as a bench player, put Tyrese Halliburton into the starting lineup. So it does feel as though they're preparing for life after Buddy Heald. It all just comes down to if they can find a trade good enough or not. Yeah. Uh, addition or loss, is there a transaction you think will have the largest impact on the team? They didn't lose a whole lot uh, and they didn't gain a whole lot. And that is the big criticism for Monty McNair thus far. He's been in Sacramento. This is his second season. He's replacing Vlade Divac, who had a terrible run here. (laughs) And for as active and as wild as Vlade Divac was, Monty McNair has really done very little aside from make his draft picks and make minor signings. If you look at this roster, it's almost identical to what Vlade Divac left. Minus the draft picks he made, you know, Tyrese Halliburton and Davion Mitchell. But all of the rest of the core, those are Vlade Divac's players. So it's hard to, uh, you know, gauge, put too much weight behind any acquisition or any loss. I guess I would say just retaining Rashawn Holmes this summer was their biggest and most key move. If they had lost Rashawn Holmes, then this team would have no playoff expectations. There'd be no starting center here. They'd be uh, pretty doomed. And it looked for a while there that Rashawn Holmes was leaving. It was actually a very tactful move by Monty McNair to be able to keep him with bird rights because a lot of speculation was that Rashawn Holmes was going to command $20 million in free agency. That didn't happen, thankfully, for the Kings' sake. So that is their, their big splash this summer outside of the draft was just keeping Rashawn Holmes, a player that a lot of people thought they would lose. So in that regard, it's a, it's pretty, it's a pretty big win, I suppose. Yeah, and another guy, like you said, a lot of the roster has remained the same, but I think I've seen a lot of from the limited Kings people I follow – uh, and even nationally, to a certain extent, there's been a lot of buzz about Davion Mitchell so far. Tell me about him. Yeah, Davion, uh, a kind of a controversial pick at the in the moment um, because the Kings are so guard heavy already. That was, you know, they didn't make a Buddy Hill trade. They had Tyrese Halliburton, they had De'Aaron Fox. And for a team who hasn't made the playoffs in 15 years, they've got plenty of holes to fill. And using one of your main avenues to fill holes, a draft pick, on another guard was kind of controversial at the time. But Davion Mitchell has won over the fan base almost immediately summer league co-MVP. The Kings were great in summer league. I know summer league doesn't matter, but it's still nice to see (laughs) your rookie perform because we've believe me, we've had rookies in Sacramento who did not show up in summer league, a lot of busts here. Um, So to have one come out and play so well, so soon, and then continue that strong play into the preseason. 
I don't know how much he's going to give them offensively consistently, but from day one, he's the best defender they've had on the perimeter. I think Luke Walton said it the other day, since Ron Artest, he's a, a game changing defender for a team who's been a horrific defensive team for 15 years. So I would say just that defensive intensity has garnered him a lot of support in Sacramento, even though on draft night, there was some concerns that they just added more guards to the log jam. Yeah. Uh, I guess then what's the, what's the best case scenario for Sacramento this year? Best case is playoffs. And I, I'm not going to be picky about it. If they, if they get it through the 10 seed and have to win the play in games to get there, that's fine. Ideally, you know, they make it into an eight seed. So it, it feels a little bit more natural. This new, we're still sort of adjusting to this new system where, you know, we don't know how valuable a 10 seed really is. Um, but if they get the 10 seed and they don't make the play in, they don't win the play and they don't make it into the actual playoffs. I do think you're going to see major changes. Um, so it's, it's, we're right on that line again. Are you worried then that say it, it is another year of, you know, the same old, same old, obviously Darren Fox has just signed a, a big extension and it, it's, there's no chatter of anything yet, but is there some inherent pressure on the Kings then to, I guess, prove to him to stick around that, you know, we're, we're developing into a good team to win? I think so. And I think that's why uh, when Monty McNair took over for Vlade Divac, there was a lot of debate in Sacramento about what Monty McNair's path forward should be. Should he tank last year? It would have been last year. Get another high draft pick, add to the young core, trade off veterans like Buddy Hill to Harrison Barnes, or should he continue building on what Vlade Divac started? And the big reason for continuing to build off of what Vlade Divac started was, like you said, to appease Fox, to show Fox that it's not going to be a long uh, years of losing again with him, that they were b- moving forward and no more steps back. So I do think there is a, a big uh, motivation in Sacramento to push for this core, this team to make the playoffs partly to satisfy Fox. And I think that's a big reason why we didn't see Monty McNair tear it down more than he did when he took over. Cause a lot of GMs do that. They come in, they, they want their own roster, their own guys, they tear it down. They want to prioritize draft picks. They can, you know, handpick their own players. McNair didn't do that. And I, I think a large part of that was to keep the Aaron Fox happy and show him that the Kings are for real. And we're, we're not going to mess around with your prime. Like they did to DeMarcus cousins just a few years before that. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess on the flip side, what's the worst case scenario? Well, it's funny because like we, we kind of started with this, even the worst case scenario to me anyways, and this might differ depending on who you ask, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because the core still is young. So I guess the worst case scenario is obviously the Kings fail in their playoff run and they end up back in the draft lottery. But like we were sort of talking about earlier, that means a new head coach, which is not the worst thing in the world when most of the fan base is not a fan of the current head coach anyways. Potentially a new general manager, although I think Monty McNair will get a shot to hire his own coach. And then you get another young piece to add to what is already a very young roster. So while there will be a lot of disappointment that they failed again, I do think you'll see the Sion optimism you see right now heading into the next next season with another draft pick and a new coach. So I don't think there's a... You know, it would suck if they if they lose again, right? But I don't think you're going to have like the meltdowns that we've had in Sacramento before because there is a lot of faith in this core. So even worst case scenario is you just add another young piece and you try it again next time. It's been 15 years. What's 16? <laughs> I was going to, I'm literally about to say, it feels a bit odd asking a Kings fan what a worst case scenario is just because it's it's usually been the outcome for exactly. the vast majority of the last six. You know, is there even such thing as a worst case anymore for your guys? Right. <laughs> yeah, we've hit the bottom. We've already hit the bottom. 
Uh, is there a guy then on the team that maybe we're not talking about that you're excited specifically to have a breakout year? I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction because this is a player that I'm not even necessarily excited about personally, but you'll never believe who is like the, the folk hero in Sacramento right now, the guy that everyone is, is showing support for. And it's an older player. It's a veteran. Uh, it's not someone that I would expect to have a breakout year. As right, you can say. I guess who it is? Go for it. Is, is it Harkless? No, but oh. it's clo- it's close. But Tristan Thompson. Oh, right? That was my second guess. Uh, who came in here from the Celtics in a trade that there was not a lot of support for when it was announced. He really has, and I can't believe I'm, I'm sort of buying into it myself because I'm usually the last one to buy into these sorts of narratives. He's been a great leader for this team in training camp. He's added a ton of toughness and championship experience. And I don't know how long the good vibes with Tristan Thompson are going to last because I'm very familiar with how it crashed and burned last year in Boston. Um, <laughs> but he, the, the young players on this roster and the coaching staff have been so complimentary of what Tristan Thompson has added on the court, but more than on the court, in the locker room in terms of leadership and toughness and how to be a professional, something the Kings really haven't had. That is a different variable that the Kings are adding into this roster that they haven't had in a while is someone who has sort of been there before. Um, So while that doesn't totally answer the question, because I think the breakout players we already talk about sort of, you know, the young guys, we know who they are, but I do think if one player is going to have a bigger impact than you would look at on paper, it just might be Tristan Thompson because of how glowing everyone has talked about him through training camp in the preseason. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I was looking at the list because I've got spot track over in front of me and I was like, oh, it's Harkless or Thompson. I just 50, 50, right. I mean, oh, I nearly had it. They love Harkless too. So to your credit, Harkless, I mean, Harkless might be our starting wing, which is uh, amazing considering. (laughs) uh, Yeah. But yeah, so they do like Harkless as well, but Thompson has been the guy in training camp that everyone keeps talking about how great his leadership has been. Yep. And another guy, I guess, uh, maybe a more obvious answer considering the scope of the question. Usually it's, you know, young guys breaking through, but, you know, Marvin Bagley's entering his fourth year. What are the expectations around him? Well, he's already, he's already missed two preseason games. I mean, the Marvin Bagley story is he just can't stay healthy. And that has severely impacted his ability to find a, a consistent rhythm. So even when he does play, it's very choppy. You can tell he's a guy who's trying to shake off the rust but he's been trying to shake off the rust for his entire career because he hasn't been able to put together, you know, three, four months of consistent uninjured basketball. And to see him miss the last two preseason games with some sort of, again, they're calling it minor knee injury. Uh, I would say the fan base, myself included, is, is pretty low on Bagley at this point, simply because we've, we've lost the ability to have expectations because he just is never on the court consistently. So that's a complete wild card. And, and it, uh, could swing the team either way. If he's good and available, the Kings might be better than we think. If he's available and bad, the Kings might be worse than we think because he is not a positive contributor on the court. The problem is we just don't know who Marvin Bagley is yet, which is a rare thing to say for a guy entering his uh, fourth year. Yeah, it's a bit odd. I don't, I, I can't fathom what a non-serious knee injury looks like. <laughs> exactly um, right. It, you just hear the word knee and you just immediately go to the worst possible conclusions. Mm-hmm. especially for a big guy who relies on athleticism like he does. He's not a particularly skilled player. He's a, he's a jumper. He's a runner. He's a dunker. Yep. So yep. you don't want to hear that for sure. Um, if there's a guy on the Kings then this year, that's going to be in line for one of those individual awards, however much of an outside chance. So who do you think it's going to be? I've got to say uh, Davion Mitchell here for rookie of the year. It's a pretty loaded 
um, rookie yep. class, and you've got a lot of players who are on bad teams that are going to put up some crazy numbers. So I don't, I don't, I would definitely wouldn't predict him over someone like Cade or Jalen Green, who has ultimate green lights on terrible teams to go yep. put up numbers. Uh, but Davion Mitchell is seemingly ready to contribute from day one. He's been fantastic all preseason. He's been shooting the ball very well. I know his shy, his outside shot was a question mark heading into his NBA career, if it would translate, also his size. Those two things have not been an issue at all. I watched him guard LeBron James last night. I'm not saying he can do that all the time, but to have a rookie, the smaller guard, right. But he's so muscle-bound. He's got good low – he moves – he's so quick moving his feet. Um, So he has an outside shot, I would say, at rookie of the year, uh, depending on if, you know, maybe he ends up taking a starting role from someone because he plays that well, and then his numbers might be comparable to some of those other guys. But Davion Mitchell – uh, and that is that answer is also largely because I don't think anyone else on the Kings really has a shot for anything else. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say it's likely, but it could happen. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to put a disclaimer on this. I'm a Pistons fan. So I'd be very surprised if the rookie of the year wasn't Cade or Jalen Green. Health, uh, you know, assuming health, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, rookie of the year is is a largely numbers-based award, and especially Jalen Green's going to be averaging 25. He might take 25 shots to do it. (laughs) But I think for every answer that's not... So for 28 other teams, when I ask this question, and any of them that give a rookie of the year prediction or guess, it's always with the caveat of, yeah, but it's going to take either the biggest outlier season of all time from their rookie, coupled with maybe a, you know, Green misses 20 games, Cade, who's already injured. So that's fun. Uh, missing 20 <laughs> games. Um, I also wanted to touch on, we haven't really spoken about him at all, and I thought this would be a good area to slip him in there. But on a more um, broader level, Darren Fox as a whole for this season, I think th- this team is only going to go as far as maybe he takes them, right? Yeah, and Darren Fox uh, did take a leap last year, and that was important. It, it did seem at times like last year was a meaningless lost year for Sacramento, but Darren Fox made some legitimate uh, improvements, particularly in his aggressiveness. Something we criticized him for early in his career is he didn't take over games enough. He scores so effortlessly. He gets to the line so effortlessly. He gets to the rim so effortlessly, but he didn't do it enough. And last year, he led the team in scoring, which is something not many people predicted. We all thought it would be our gunner but he healed, right? But De'Aaron Fox actually led the team in scoring, which is a huge uptick in aggressiveness from him than we've seen for the, you know, the prior years of his career. He's added a bunch of muscle this summer. And I know everyone says that, but for him, it's actually true. If you look at his images from rookie year to now, he's way bigger. Um, So he still has, but he, and he's young. So he has more room to grow. And he's another guy like Bagley, but even more so where what Fox does this year could change the potential of this team dramatically. I wouldn't predict him to be an all-star because the West is loaded and you have to be a good team. Uh, But I think he has the potential to play at an all-star level, even if he doesn't get the nod for the all-star game. And if he does that and these certain things break, right, the Kings just might uh, end that playoff drought because he, he's, he had a, a very nice leap last year and Sometimes players, once they jump on that progression, they keep going. And that's the hope in Sacramento is that Darren Fox takes another one this year. And then you're looking at an all-star player. Yeah, I can't believe Darren Fox is only 19 still. That's just you know, another Tatum reference. I mean, he's one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, who just, no, he's, but yeah, he seems so much younger than like he's 19 forever. And I guess the main worry I'd look at with Darren Fox, just on a casual basis, as someone who doesn't watch a lot of Kings outside of you know national games or when they play Detroit, but I guess the shooting 
took a leap last year because of the, I guess, frequency that he was shooting from outside. He's still, he's awesome getting to the rim. Everyone knows that. But I guess everywhere else, it's probably like that's the next logical step. 32% from three last year, but on higher frequency and you know volume than he has ever done. So that's that's a promising sign, right? Yes and no. I, I think it's a good point that you make because that was the one criticism that I had of his season last year. For all the leaps he did make, you did see him start to settle for early in the shot clock three-pointers, kind of a little bit Russell Westbrooky, where he <laughs> was the best player on the team. So I understand why you're taking that shot. But for him, you know, if you if you told me, I'm looking at the numbers now too, that De'Aaron Fox was going to shoot five and a half threes per game. Uh, before last season, I would have said you're crazy because he's just never been that sort of a volume shooter, especially yeah. when his percentage isn't good. So to see him uptick the volume that much, I suppose it's good in the long run because maybe he gains confidence and comfortability taking that. And once the percentage gets to a respectable place, you're going to appreciate the fact that he took these meaningless years to work on it. So I guess it remains to be seen if that's going to be a positive or a negative. I think for wins and losses last year, it was a negative. It didn't matter that much because the Kings weren't going anywhere anyways. Yep. But for a, a season like this, where there are playoff expectations, you need to tighten up everything you can to optimize what, what little talent you have to win basketball games. So we'll see where that, where that three point percentage and attempts ends up at the end of the year. It could certainly swing him in one way or the other. He could fall in love with it too much and it becomes a negative, or he could turn it into a, resp- a respectable offensive asset and just open up more for his game. And what would your prediction for that be? Uh, boy, he hasn't looked great in preseason. I I just don't think he's that kind of player yet. Um, I haven't seen it. So I'm going to say it's it's probably going to look similar to how it does this year. And we're just hoping for a, for a late bloomer as a shooter, which we've seen in the NBA. But I would expect that uptick to happen when he's 25, 26, 27, and not so much next season. Yeah, he is only 19. So you've got, you know, a heap of time. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, finally, I have NBC's uh, wins totals in front of me and I ask everyone this, the Kings win line is set based on this at 35 and a half. Are you taking the over or the under? I'm taking the over and I'm taking the over because they, uh, essentially hit that mark last season. Um, it was a less game. So you have to sort of just take their winning percentage and, yep, yep. you know, do, do, do some 35 wins. Yep. Yeah. So they, they, and I do think they improved and they've been very good in the preseason, um, so I do, I think that's an over and I feel pretty confident about that. This is going to sound really dumb at the end of the year. If they don't do it, but I, yeah. And, and I, it's funny. Cause we, I just talked about this with our Kings Herald staff. I just pulled the room up. We are our, our Slack channel, uh, the same number this morning. And for a crew that is known for being pessimistic and too critical of the team, oftentimes yep. I would say, you know, 80% of our staff all took that over because it is so similar to what they did last year. And they did make some legitimate uh, improvements. So I, 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 you know, we'll see, but I, I think I'd take the over there. Yeah. And there's never, you know, if there's a team that is guaranteed to not make you look silly, it's the Kings, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if you, if they don't make it, no one's going to care. It's just the. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like the Kings line it's, and I know the point of the line is to be right on and make you really think, but I think the Kings one is one of the ones where I'm looking at it going, I don't know if I'll touch it because it seems like a pretty fair reflection when you consider, I guess, the number, but also where it puts them overall in the West. So yeah, it's in that same level of, you know, New Orleans, basically. Um, And I think that's a pretty fair reflection. You know, both those teams, it's going to be like a boom or bust. You know, things break right, it'll be sweet. And if things break wrong, then, oh boy, they break wrong. So 
Um, I, I probably won't touch that number, but I think it's a. I'd probably shade. I probably shade over, but yeah, I wouldn't feel confident about it as a neutral. No, you. De- I mean, I'm not putting money on it, partly because gambling is not legal in, in Massachusetts yet. Although I know, do you know there are some alternative uh, <laughs> options if I wanted to take that route? But no, I, I don't. I wouldn't feel comfortable enough to put anything on it uh, either, because if if you're if you're putting any of your financial uh, no <laughs> on the king, that's just a bad idea. <laughs> I, I would not recommend that. Oh, well, I'll, I'll slip this in now, but Vivek, you know, financially, is there a guy on the team that w- would say, who's the most Nick Rocks guy on this team? Oh, boy. Uh, the most, that's a great question. The most Nick Rocks guy. I'm going to say Nimaeus Keita. I don't know if you've seen any of him at all. I have not. He was their second round pick out of Utah State. He's basically a seven foot giant, big raw center. And he just seems like the kind of player Vivek would fall in love with. Vivek has notoriously loved the Giants. They brought in Sim Bular in his first year, yep, yep. seven six giant from India. They got Yorgos Papayanis a few years ago, gigantic Greek man. Um, and this is their latest giant project. I do think Vivek has a as a soft spot for the Giants. So if there's any Nick Rocks player this year, I think it'd be Nimaeus Keita. We'll see if he does any contributions though. I don't know. Nimaeus Rocks, I like it. There you go, Nimaeus Rocks. Uh, and finally, do you have a bold prediction for the Kings this year? My bold prediction. Maybe it's, I, I think this should count as a bold prediction considering a 15 year playoff drought. I think the playoff drought, oh, you're going to make, I guess I'll say, I think it ends this it's bold. year. It is bold. It, it, that is because that's the bold move. I would say the, the, le, the lesser bold statement is that I, I genuinely do believe they're making the play in. They're, they're going to be the 10 seed. That's sort of where I'm charting them. And then yep. from there, we'll see what happens. But I, but I don't know, maybe I'm getting swept up in the optimism. It, it doesn't happen every year, so I don't feel that uncomfortable doing it. It's not as if we're, uh, you know, we're always missing on this team. It's not like the Kings are hopeless, like romantics about how good they're going to be. We're often very negative. Uh, we're <laughs> often expecting the worst. We're always taking the under. So I don't think this is just, you know, blind homerism completely. I think yeah. there is some optimism in Sacramento, and I actually think it might be warranted, but we won't know until we watch them play. Yeah, I feel like there's a clear tier below the Kings, so I'd say a play-in. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not yeah. bold, but yeah, play-in I think is a very fair one. Um, I guess also another maybe not too bold prediction would be the Buddy Heald doesn't finish the season with the Kings, right? Yeah, I would say Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley. Uh, if the Kings do make any moves, it's going to be with one of those two guys. They've been on the block for almost since the moment Monty McNair got here. I frankly don't know what's taking McNair so long to trade these <laughs> players because the rumor, the rumors have been running wild endlessly, but yeah, I would say that's a pretty fair, but also when you're predicting a, a $20 million contract, leaving the team, that is a bold prediction. Cause that means they're doing something big. So yep. I, but I do think, yeah, those are the two players that, that were most likely to be on the way out. Yep. Uh, do you have anything to promote before we let you go? Uh, sure. If you just want to, uh, listeners can follow the Kings Herald, um, everywhere. We have a podcast, the Kings Herald show. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash Kings Herald, independent Kings coverage. Um, Formerly of SB Nation, I'm not sure. Uh, you got, actually, you're SB Nation guy, right? I am, yes. Yeah, so we were the, the old Sacktown royalty crew, now uh, independent with the Kings Herald. Um, so yeah, any any kind of outside support for our independent coverage is always much appreciated. Too easy. Well, other than that, we appreciate you jumping on the show and best of luck for your Kings this season. Hopefully it's not too much of a wild ride for once. <laughs> yes, you two with the Pistons. It's not going to be an easy year for you guys either. So, uh, so good luck to you as well. Uh, no expectations makes it fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's also true.